Watch it all come around as I lay on the ground. Joffrey, Cersei, ill and pain and hound. They all think I'm lost, but I know where I'm bound. I'm the blood in the north when it all comes down. My word is my bond, and my bond is my word. Valar, Daenerys, all men must serve. See, as a raven flies, and time slips by. Valar, my rulers, all men must Welcome to the Game of Thrones podcast, the officially unofficial podcast for HBO's Game of Thrones television series. I am your host, Aaron. And I'm Jim. And tonight we'll be talking about season four premiere, episode 401, entitled Two Oswalds. I feel like we should have come up with a little more obscure and complicated names for this show. It should They should have called it like Five Swords. No, no, no. I mean for Five us. Five Sporks. As hosts, we need... We need n- names that are very similar to each other and spelled completely weird and hard to memorize. How about that? So <laughs> your your name would be Jim and my name would be Jin. Yes, yeah. with two N's. Uh-huh. Or no, it'd be my name would be Jim J I M N. Okay, and I and I could spell mine J Y M. There you go. Perfect. All right, Jim. Uh, <laughs> uh, first off, apologies for the feed situation. Um, as you know, if you listen to our preseason cast, we transitioned from our Night's Watch brand to this uh, uh, the generic form, uh, Game of Thrones podcast, and we renamed Jim put a little um, witticism, the famous Jim Jones witticism. Uh, he called us in the show description the god of tits and wine, and Steve Jobs rose from the grave, said tits? <laughs> on my iTunes <laughs> and banned us. Uh, we got instant banned by some fucking robot, and it's taken us almost two weeks to get that all worked out. Uh, but our old feed is reestablished. Um, if you are listening to the new feed, you're doing something wrong because it doesn't exist anymore. Anyway, I apologize for jerking you around like that, but we now got everything back, and uh, uh, hopefully we'll be good going forward. Another uh, apology. I'm still sick at the moment. Uh, we did the preview cast, and I think I was sick at that point. So my voice is not 100%. You'll probably hear me coughing in the background, but I'll try to keep it to a minimum. Yeah, miraculously, despite our open-mouth kissing on a nightly basis, yet. I have not been sick throughout your two-week <laughs> ordeal. Yeah. Thank Christ. Uh, well, one, one the, of the weeks all the, old, the old gods and the new. Yeah. Uh, all right. Were you going to do another famous Jim Jones witticism? No, no. I was just trying to fill time while you took a drink. Uh, give credit to where credit's due. Uh, we are using Aria's Prayer by Dominic Omega um, off the HBO uh, licensed, or what do they call that? when Commissioned? Uh, commissioned. HBO commissioned uh, uh, hip-hop remix album called Catch the Throne. You can get the whole thing for free at soundcloud.com slash catch the throne. Uh, unfortunately, we're probably not going to be using this for long because we don't really, you know, we like to use stuff that we have the rights fully secured for and, you know, 30 seconds, fair use, blah, blah, blah. But I don't want to get sued. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've actually reached out to two people on SoundCloud to use uh, some of their Game of Thrones music. And hopefully next week we'll return with, uh, something from that. So if you hated Arya's thr- uh, prayer, hang tight. It's leaving. If you loved it, go to soundcloud.com slash catch the throne and grab the whole album. I <laughs> actually enjoy it. Um, what do you think of this episode? Huh? As a season opener, it was it was good. I I mean, I like the ending a lot. That the final scene with Arya and the Hound is is really good. Mm. There's a lot of cool action in there. Um, 
I don't know. I mean, some of the stuff I just can't stand to watch Joffrey do his thing, especially when he's so smug about it. Sure. So a lot of that stuff was kind of annoying to me, um, especially when you know Jamie's kind of become a character we like now. Sure. So I I don't like when he gets smacked down by uh, an insolent little child. Right. So I I don't know. I mean, it was good. It was definitely a good episode. Uh, there were just parts of it that eh, kind of annoyed me. I thought it was great. Uh, I too have a problem with Lannisters being triumphant and it's hard to stomach, <laughs> uh, the opening scene, uh, which we'll talk about here in a bit where mm. Ned's sword got melted down and reforged as Lannister blades. It's a lot, it's a lot to take and Joffrey's statue. And, you know, it seems like every, the two Lannisters we do like get massively disrespected. Yeah. But I thought it was a strong opener to kind of reestablish where we are where we are at and the sure. final 10 minutes were just fantastic which we'll get to. Uh, let's go on to the recap. Of course this is uh the t- uh, episode called Two Swords and it's a total double D uh production. That's uh, Dan Weiss and David Benioff. Um Dan this was his directorial debut. Mm. Uh David got a poke at the series last uh last season. Uh, this is his first time at the helm, and it was written by uh, David Benioff and D.B. Weiss. So, again, st- uh, top to finish, it's a double D production. Um, it premiered to 6.64 million households watching it or people watching it. People is that households. a lot? That doesn't sound like a lot because I'm used to the Walking Dead numbers. It's for premium cable. It's a phenomenon. And it's okay. it's 1.2, 1.3 million than last season's. Uh, Damn. Uh, sign off uh, finale, yeah. uh, and then they say, "Yeah, I read an off season that up to six million people pirate it. Somehow they measure that. Hmm. So that if you put all those numbers together, that's about Walking Dead numbers, and it's just H. It's it's probably the biggest hit HBO has ever had. I'd have to do a little bit more research before I said that with confidence. But uh, in fact, uh, Monday, uh, Game of Thrones is uh, renewed." by HBO <laughs> for two seasons. The, it's the day first after time, the premiere? It's the first time they've actually authorized two full seasons. Yeah. Um, As if there was ever a question if they'd renew this thing. Yeah, uh, apparently not. Um, <laughs> you know, that's probably not enough to get them to the end. Or I know it's not enough to get them to the end, but mm-hmm. it's still, it's, it's pretty impressive. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Uh, so let's get right to the episode. Um, I said something in the pre, uh, not the preview, uh, in the instant take, mm-hmm. where I was disappointed that we don't have a Stark theme song. Apparently, I was wrong, and Rob S sent uh, in a correction via Reddit that there is a Winterfell theme. And if you notice the music, there, there's this haunting violin arrangement that plays from the time we first see Ice to the time uh, Tywin Lannister steps forward. Uh, very villainously, uh, then the reigns of Casimir take over. But that f- 15, 20 seconds was the Winterfell theme. It's so hard to tell that theme in, in this episode, at least, because, like you said, it morphs into the Lannister theme, 
Reigns Castamere, and then at the end of the episode, you said they also play it, but it morphs into the general Game of Thrones theme, and it's actually, it doesn't even morph there, it's underneath yeah, it's, the theme. It's what happens when your theme music is for a house that gets everyone beheaded, <laughs> uh, betrayed, throat slits, sold into bondage. I mean, it's 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 the kind of music that would play for a house that just gets completely fucking owned at every level. Well, it feels like that's a good way to do it in this episode because yeah. not only is the sword uh, the the are the swords a slap in the face to the Starks, but at the end of the episode, it doesn't even let their theme play then either. Right. It's just like you guys are an afterthought now, right? Um, and it just. Uh, as a Stark fan, it feels like such a violation to see Ned's blade, who's been in the Stark house for thousands of years, handed down since the kings, well, since the Starks were the kings in the north, and not just lords. Hmm. Um, to have that 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 great ceremonial ancestor blade melted down for these prick Lannisters to make you know <laughs> two two swords out of it's yeah it's 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 kind of like. It almost felt like it was filmed like a sexual assault. You know, two guys <laughs> okay. hold this thing down, they knock off its its clothing, its its hilt, and yeah. then they just have their way with it. Mm. And it's it's gross. I hated it. And then uh, you know the then then Tywin just throws the wolf pelt onto the forge, which Yeah, which is almost more insulting to me because eh, okay, I'm not a big lore guy. Okay. Uh, the sword being 2,000 years old, whatever. It's not that fancy of a sword. Uh, but when he throws <laughs> that, you, that fucking awesome wolf sheath into the fire, I couldn't believe it. I was so sad to see that go because it's Plus such a cool Plus the smell. Sheath. My God. Ooh, yeah. A 2,000-year-old dire of, wolf pelt. And, and stark sweat. <laughs> you know how many dire wolves and wolves and hounds have pissed on that thing. Oh, yeah. It's it's pretty bad. Um. Anyway, we go from there right into the intro, which had a couple of cool new things. Uh, three new things I noticed. Uh, they had the Dread Fort, which I thought was cool because the towers popping out looked very meat tenderizery, mm. and their sigil being the flayed man uh, makes sense. The Dread Fort is where? That is the uh, the head fortress or the the homeland for the Boltons. Who were the two of the architects of the Red Wedding? The phrase was ones, and then okay. Bruce Bolton uh, was the other, uh, the betrayed Rob. That's where Theon's being held. Okay. And uh, we also see another loca- location, Marine, which is the greatest of the slave cities around the Gulf of Grief. Uh, you know, Danny's worked her way up the coast, and it's kind of like a video game. She keeps leveling up. <laughs> you know, you had uh, um, Astapor. And then you had uh, Son of a Bitch. Yes, Young Kai. God damn, I forgot it. You had Astapor, then Young Kai, and then Marine. And you can notice it's it's visibly bigger and more impressive than the other. Although, a smaller harpy, I think. <laughs> the harpy on Young Kai was so big, it looked out of place. I think Young Kai were compensating for <laughs> Probably. You know, you got a harpy that big. Uh, one thing I thought was confusing is they had a really technically impressive swooping shot where the camera blasts into, you know, wind up toy world orbit uh-huh. and does like a 180 degree turn where it seems like it's going north again, but it's actually shooting all the way down to the tip of Westeros south, 
swooping over the arm of Dorne, which is we talked about in a preseason, is kind of like the Florida State Peninsula, mm-hmm. all along the archipelago called the uh, Stepping Stones, over to Essos, which is the eastern continent off of Westeros, then up the uh, you know the the three slave cities. And I thought when I was watching it, holy shit, that's confusing because it was the map does I think a very good job of showing people where things are relating related but when it does that kind of suborbital gymnastics it might have been hard to follow for people and i know it, it, you, you found it kind of confusing too uh, yeah i thought they just went straight south with it right. instead of east uh so uh we come back from the uh pre-season or the pre-credit sequence or the credit sequence rather and tywin's presenting one of the new swords to jamie uh, you notice that one of the swords is significantly shorter than the other. Yeah, when they were pouring it in the mold. And I don't know where that other sword is going. Who would you suppose it'd go to? Tyrion. <laughs> <laughs> Being shorter? I don't know. Uh, okay. All right. Uh, that's, or, that's mildly interesting. Or probably interesting. more likely Joffrey. All right. Uh, solid speculation there. Um, <laughs> so he, he can't just be the crossbow king, right? <laughs> He's going to try to put a sword into a crossbow and invent some <laughs> new new horrific weapon. Uh, Jamie, uh, we, we see that Tywin plans for Jamie to forsake the Kingsguard, um, or to be set aside as the Lord Commander, and then make his way back to Castle Rock and rule in his stead and be his rightful heir. Uh, Jamie, not so much. Completely yeah. rebuffs the offer. Why do you think Jamie defies Tywin here? I think that Jamie, after being called a Kingslayer and an Oathbreaker, takes this oath very seriously, being the Kingsguard. I don't think he wants to break that oath. Again. Uh, uh, yeah, break an oath again and really just like double oath breaker. Right. Yeah. <laughs> well, double oath breaker on you. <laughs> Do you think, I think that, yeah, his experience with Brienne, which is this shining paragon of Westerosi knighthood, even though she's not technically a knight, has really affected him. Yeah. And... Her winning her respect has, in a maybe not so weird way, allowed him to find his own self respect. Mm-hmm. But as a result, uh, Tywin kicks him out of the family, uh, disowns him, says that you're you know you're a man without a uh, sword hand, and now you're a man without a family. But uh, Jamie saunters out, head held high, and I thought that was a very interesting contrast because I think they deliberately shot and framed. That and block that last scene of him walking out to be a mirror image of, of Tyrion walking out after his father told him that he could not have Castlery Rock. Sure, it's a nice contrast. Ty, or Tyrion came in to ask for it, was denied. Jamie came in, was offered and denied. Yeah, and Tyrion walked out pissed off and dejected, and Jamie walked out head held high and swagger. So mm-hmm. that was really cool. We then go outside of King's Landing, where Tyrion is waiting alongst the King's Road to meet the Dornishmen arriving from south. Mm-hmm. We find out from the Dornishmen in question that uh, Prince Oberon has arrived early. First of all, it's a shock to Tyrion that Prince Oberon was ex- uh, was was the one that they sent. He was expecting his older brother, uh, who is very mild-mannered, elderly, uh, has a bad case of the gout. Yeah, he was not only shocked, he was nervous, you could tell. Because he's like, ah, we're a wolf. I'd be happy to have a warrior of uh, (laughs) Prince Oberon's reputation. So we kind of get a little bit of badass flavor before we even see the guy. Yeah. And uh, they decide that they're going to have to track him down, but since he has a famous sexual appetite, he's famous for fucking half of Westeros, that uh, they're going to try some brothels. 
Uh, I got to say, for the warrior reputation that precedes him here, uh, yellow balls is a terrible sigil. I mean, yellow implies <sighs> cowardice, in my opinion. Yellow lemons. And uh, having yellow balls really implies cowardice. True, but did you get the <laughs> sigils for the other houses of Dorne? It was a a vulture cl- clutching a dead baby. <laughs> there was a crown skull. I mean, yeah, where does yellow balls fit in there? I don't think it does. You know, that's that's one of the sillier houses. <laughs> okay, kind of all might, right. But but he's a lot of fun. He pays for everyone's mm. bar tab, and okay. they kind of they kind of made him uh, made him a great house uh, as a joke. <laughs> There's actually nothing to those sigils, you know. I'm, people can, are free to uh, to research it, but they're just a little detail, I think, thrown in the books to show that uh, as like our first glimpse that Podrick might hmm. not be a complete dumbass because okay. he's kind of yeah, been yeah. played as a fool to this point, except in bed, except in bed <laughs> where the man knows clearly what he's doing. He's prodigy, yeah. uh, but uh, I think this is a first inclination. There might be more to him than than meets the eye. So you said that there's nothing to those sigils. Do mm-hmm. you mean that the lion and the wolf don't indicate anything about the spirit of? No, no, no. I mean that or for specifically those particular those... sigils, there, there's. Okay. If you go to look at their entry on the uh, Westeros Wikipedia, which I do not recommend you do <laughs> if you haven't read the books, okay. uh, it's just basically, yep, that's the horse, or that's the house, and that's the sigil, and they're from Dorne. Oh, all right. There isn't, you know, there's no great deeds or other characters. Um, Anyway, we go to the brothel in, in question, and then we're introduced to Prince and his paramour picking out whores. Uh, this show is famous for its sex position, but mm-hmm. I thought this will went a lot further than just being mere sex position. I thought that we found out a lot about the characters, showing rather than telling. They don't like timidity. They're not. They're not overly proud of their titles. They're not overly concerned with the status of their relationship. Uh, or yeah, the fact that they're bastards. You they're, know? The, uh, he's not. Well, she, she is. is yeah. Um, and she in question is Ilaria Sands. Mm-hmm. And, of course, that's not her real last name. That's just what they call bastards down at Dorne, just like they call bastards up North Snow. Yeah. And uh, so forth. So uh, we find a lot of things about these two. Number one, it seems like they have a very passionate relationship that's a very open relationship. Mm-hmm. Were it any open, further open, you probably couldn't even call it a relationship. Sure. What did you think about the, uh, not the hint, not the implication, the fact that Prince Oberon is a bisexual? Uh, it seems like there's plenty of that in this world. I didn't think it was anything, uh, out of the ordinary, honestly. I just, it's interesting the way they portrayed it. It's almost like he doesn't care where he gets his pleasure from. He okay. likes exceptional, beautiful things, and yeah. if it's going to lead to his gratification, he's all for it. Man, woman, it seems like goats, that comes apparently if you believe Braun. <laughs> and some olive oil. Yeah, uh, it it appears that the warrior status kind of comes along with that as well. Mm-hmm. Like he's just out to kill and have fun and like do his own thing. Yeah. You know? uh, so whether it comes to sex or war. Either one of those. He's he's in it for fun. Right on. Uh, can I say that the, the blonde hair guy in uh-huh. this and the guy uh, who he's seducing here, um, he has the mouth of Andy Sandberg, doesn't he? He's a little Sandbergian. Sure. Okay. <laughs> All right. I wasn't sure if I was the only one who saw that. Uh, his sigil is a lonely island. <laughs> um, 
And he, yeah, he also is the guy, same guy that seduced Sir Loris last year that got yeah. information for Littlefinger. So um, a little wink to last last season. Uh, so as they're as they're making their final selections uh, and they're about to get down to business, he hears to Lannisters singing the reigns of Castamere. Mm-hmm. Goes down to challenges them, uh, informs them that they're not lions, they're little pink men. Uh, they're far too slow, slow in the draw, and demonstrates the point by impaling one of their wrists as he reaches for his longsword. This was absolutely perfect, in my opinion, because by saying you're far too slow on the draw mm-hmm. and his sword sitting right on the table, he knows where his hand is going to be right. when he reaches for that sword. Right. So it's not like he has to guess and try to uh, turn this to his advantage. He's already done it just by putting the challenge out there. Right, right. It reminded me a little bit of the scene from Justified where Raylan uh, was trying to outdraw this famous quick draw artist. And uh-huh. instead of reaching for his gun, he actually used his foot to yank the tablecloth. So it went out of the guy's reach. Yeah. Um, but I, I thought it was a fantastic scene. Great way to introduce these two characters. Tyrion walks in. Uh, he makes formal introduction introductions to everyone. Uh, seems like Oberon uh, immediately takes a liking to Tyrion and Bronn. Hmm. Yeah, yeah, especially to Bronn. Especially to Bronn. Um, th- we'll. I'll probably talk a little in the next scene about why he's uh, keen on Tyrion. But Bronn is a killer. <laughs> yeah, he's and... killed enough men to get to where he is. Uh, the right men. Uh, so I think Oberyn likes that a lot. And this, and the scene where Oberon's like, "We'll need more girls, yes," and Bronn's like nodding yes, and Tyrion's like <laughs> nodding no. It's so good. Mm-hmm. A lot of actually comical moments in this episode. Uh, Tyrion wants to speak to him alone. They uh, commiserate over the fact that they're both second sons, yeah. and that this arguably sending the second son to the wedding invitation is a slight to the Lannisters. Yeah. So. But also, it seems very dangerous because uh, Oberon tells a story that we talked about in a preseason cast about how the Lannisters came during the sack of King's Landing after the Mad King was overthrown, and uh, his sister was the princess who was married to Rhaegar, and she had two little children. They were all brutally murdered by the mountain, and he points out if if you're... If your father's henchman killed my my family, then your father gave the order and to tell him when you see him that the Lannisters aren't the only ones to pay their debts. Yeah, I like that. Dude seems like a very uh, dangerous guy, and I I do feel like he likes Tyrion, but that scene where he grabbed him by the chin, mm. especially with his status as a dwarf, that is such an insolent, uh, you know, almost beyond the pale personal insult to Tyrion. Yeah, who did not appreciate it. I mean, he's royalty. Yeah. And and to even touch royalty. He's the uncle to the king. Is a big deal, let and, alone yeah. the way it happens. Yeah, it, it, it was it was pretty intense. And, you know, Tyrion wasn't taken. And he's, like, shoved the guy's hand away. But he also knows yeah. he's got him dead to rights. Because Tyrion's not dumb. He knows what happened there. So, going to be an interesting wedding, it seems. Um, <laughs> let's go on to Across the Narrow Sea. To Danny, uh, who is uh, fawning over her dragons, she's got Drogon in her lap. Um, but then the three dra- dragons start fighting over a dead goat, and Dro- she tries to intercede for some reason, and Drogon snaps at her just in time for Jorah to come in and say they can never be t- tamed, Khaleesi, even by the mother. <laughs> um, what do you what do you make of uh, the dragons getting bigger, but also wilder? Yeah, first of all, 
bigger. God, that's cool. Because last season, they, they didn't seem this big, like even nearly this big. They were like as, Great Danes, maybe. Yeah, they weren't as big as uh, Daenerys herself. Right. So now this one is towering over her. They seem like the size of like a Bengal tiger, I would say, with wings, of course. <laughs> yeah. And it, but it was the black one's bigger than the other two. Yeah, certainly. I think he might even be a little bit uh, larger than that, like maybe the size of a Kodiak bear. Yeah, yeah. Like the bear that uh, Bran fought last season. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Um, so that was just freaking cool to see these big-ass dragons that are actually small-ass dragons. Right. And are going to get way, way bigger. Right. Um, but yeah, when it snaps at her and he reminds her they can't be tamed, not even by their mother, That's that's got to be foreshadowing for something, right? I mean, why else, why else show this scene uh, the way they showed it? Well, it's certainly mildly interesting. Because... <laughs> I assume that she's going to have some trouble keeping these things on a leash. Um, but we also know it's a historical fact that the uh, Targaryens 300 years ago rode these giant beasts that could big enough to swallow mammoths whole yeah. uh, into battle and use them as giant combat engines. So it will be interesting because not a lot of people, no one is really that, that's left alive has any memory of these giant fearsome dragons. The last few dragons died out, you know, a hundred years ago and they were very stunted sickly specimens. Yeah. Um, you know, no one really knows how that would all work. Mm-hmm. So, and you know, if she's going to make that happen, it, it's, I think up until now fans of the show could assume that like, Oh, these dragons are going to get bigger and they're going to follow her verbal commands and yes. all that stuff. And now mm-hmm. we're starting to see that, you know, maybe Drogon's thinking, yeah, I like my I like my head scratched, but why am I going to listen to what this, this you know, pink little woman has to say Yeah, when it comes yeah. time to my food? This is really <laughs> the first indication of that at all. Yeah, that it might not be just uh, Danny with dragons, boom. It's, it's <laughs> yeah. you know. Um, so they're dangerous. Uh, speaking of dangerous, uh, we find out that uh, Dario and Grey Worm have been uh, holding Danny up because they're gambling over who has the privilege of riding up front with her in the convoy. Mm-hmm. Uh, my bet would be on the eunuch that has been trained uh, over psychological and chemical conditioning to feel no pain <laughs> and not be tired. but And can have his nipples cut off and, without moving. <laughs> yeah, um, but uh, uh, Danny comes in there, puts an end to it, punishes them both by having to walk at the rear of the uh, train, which is a, a pretty grave Dothraki insult. And we see a significant look between Grey Worm and Missandei. What do you think's up with that, Jim? That's a good question, because immediately after that look, Dario starts to say, oh, you like her? Yeah, like uh, what you see? Got no use for that, nothing in your pants. Um, <laughs> Scabbard's and he, empty. And he tells him that he's not a smart man. And that to Grey me Worm, says, yes. yeah, Grey, Grey Worm tells Daria that he's not a smart man. That to me says that this is not what Dario is implying. Mm-hmm. It's it's some other kind of relationship. Maybe it's just a mutual respect that they were both once slaves. Now they've been freed, and they just have a bond over that. Yeah. So this isn't this isn't something in the books. So I can speculate a little bit and share some stuff I saw on Reddit. Some people wondered if. This was a sign that maybe they're going to retcon Grey Worm and Miss Sandy, who were hanging out in the same city and seemed to be roughly of an age and, and actually maybe even have similar looks about them, mm-hmm. that they're actually brother and sister. 
So like, she was raised like legitimate brother and sister. Legitimate brother and sister. That she was raised to be a translator. He was raised to be this you know combat eunuch, and okay. that he cares for her on that kind of level. And something that Madbrew and I used to talk about is anytime they can take when they consolidate characters and kind of change things, we like it when they add these extra connections because the more connections characters have between each other, hmm. the more dramatic possibilities you can introduce into the storyline. And also the the more diverse the kinds of connections, I think. Sure. The more interesting the story gets as well because we've seen romantic interest everywhere in this show. Sure. So if we see... <laughs> well, we've also seen brother and sister interest <laughs> as well, uh, sometimes combined. But, but I think... You know, it might be interesting, even if they weren't brother and sister, that maybe this slave bond uh, mm. is a new kind of bond that we haven't seen yet, and that right. could have interesting implications. Right. Uh, let's move on to Sansa and Shay and Tyrion. Uh, Sansa is inconsolable now that she's found out what's the details of the Red Wedding, and she knows that her brother's head got cut off and was defiled by having his uh, gray wind's head sewn onto the body mm -hmm. and shay tries to comfort her she offers him lemon cakes which she doesn't want to eat and i'm like shit <laughs> i knew sansa was fucking distraught once i saw her turn down lemon cakes yeah the pigeon pie eh, and yeah, I, I, I turned that down you too. take a lead pigeon pie but sansa's all about the <laughs> lemon cakes man yeah so Tyrion dismisses shay which doesn't she doesn't seem to like overly much and tries to comfort uh, Sansa on a, a more personal basis by grabbing her hand and saying, what can I do? And Sansa's like, you can do nothing. Yeah. Uh, Sansa's, He's part of the problem, honestly. <laughs> I mean, yeah. I mean, Sansa's life is kind of shitty. She is mm -hmm. a def she's a, a glorified hostage on her best day. That's her steady state life. Yeah. Then you add to the fact that her family's been slaughtered. Uh, she's under the custody. She's she's married off to the you know in her mind probably the worst of the Lannisters. Hmm. Really? Why do you say that? Because Joffrey is obviously well. She her her third expanse of Lannisters was Joffrey, the worst and of the Cersei. family. Yeah, and maybe Tyrion is nice, and I know that Marjorie was trying to sell her on that, but he's still a Lannister, and he's sure. you know she arguably one of the best catches of the kingdom, and. As another way to mock and humiliate the Starks, she's been she she got married off to the stunt the the stunted, uh, un unloved, unappreciated uh, afterthought of T Tywin's lineage that he plans to you know no further indulge. Uh, yeah. True, he'll be the Lord of Winterfell, but that's something that's good for him, not good for Sansa. It's just yeah. it's it's you know it's another humiliation to the Starks, basically. Sure. Um, what did you think about the look that Shay fires off the Tyrion when he grabs her hand? Oh my god. Just freaking play it cool, Shay. I mean, they're trying to keep this relationship secret. There's no way that's going to happen with her. She's well, she's given dirty looks to his wife. She's she's just not leaving the room when he asks for privacy. Right. She's going to blow it. Yeah, and it's she's showing up in the next scene in said, his chambers. Ro like rolling on the next scene, she shows up in his chambers, which presumably is Sansa's chambers too. Uh -huh. And she tries to seduce him. She says it's been weeks since they've touched each other, and Tyrion's like, "It's not a good time." Uh, everyone whose last name is Tyrion or Lannister either wants me dead or uh, humiliated, and so do the the Martells, uh, which is Prince Oberon's family. 
So it's pretty bad, but she thinks that, you know, it can all be solved by the power of the pussy. Sure. And uh, he rejects her, but then she throws in his face Varys coming to try to buy her off last season. Something we kind of debated uh, whether she was going to think that that was from Tyrion or yeah. not. But well, now she we know. seems to accuse him, and she doesn't seem to believe his denials either. Yeah, I agree. And like you said, inability to play it cool because she starts screaming and shouting. She storms <laughs> out. And wouldn't you know it, one of Sansa's lady maids overhears it and looks looks on with her own look of mild interest. Yeah. Uh, next scene, we're still in King's Landing. Jamie's being fitted with a golden hand by Kyburn, the disgraced maester. Um, some comedy here with Cersei just being a professional drunk at this point. I loved, <laughs> you know, her saying, I spent days with the goldsmith, and Jamie's like, cocks and eyebrows says days and she like twirls her cup and says better part of an afternoon <laughs> yeah it's so showing good. that she doesn't really care that much no she and, and she's just drinking with a purpose as well yeah she also thanks kyburn for his help in that other matter the other matter the other matter the symptom that he was able to help relieve for her hmm. you think it's uh heartburn <laughs> no, i doubt it gas i doubt it bunions it's got to be bunions wearing high heels all the time has got to be murder yeah i doubt it <laughs> what do you think it is uh hmm see what would cersei be up to while jamie was out the 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 line at the end of this that it's, he's just too late well means we know, maybe she's been hooking up with somebody else well we know for a fact she was fucking lancel which is one of the yeah who is lancel lancel's one of the lannister cousins he was the kind okay. of the sickly-looking dude. He, he also oh, all right. yeah, also yeah. murdered, arguably, Robert by getting him drunk. So I'm wondering if there aren't symptoms from that. I mean, you got to think that these these kings and princes and, and people are going to have some sort of diseases. Because they just <laughs> fuck all the time. I think it could just be early-onset incest pregnancy, you know? <laughs> But uh, he gave her a little bit okay. of... Okay, uh, so think, that's uh, her problem, huh? I don't know. It's 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 not... I don't I don't think I'm using book knowledge on that. It's just... Because uh, okay. this didn't. This is another thing that they are uh, kind of uh, inventing for the show. Yeah. Uh, because they're, they're really doing some heavy lifting in adapting arguably two and a half books into one, uh, a, you know, possibly two seasons. Hmm. So, uh, he tries to figure out what's wrong with her. Mm-hmm. She, uh, rattles off all of her troubles. You know, Jamie started <laughs> a war, then fled, got captured. Her husband was tragically murdered in a hunting accident. They had a siege. She had to marry off Joff to a woman that she's intensely jealous of. Her only daughter got shipped off to Dorne, which now knowing what we know about the Dornish, that seems like a much bigger risk than it would have been if you were just watching the show um oh yeah kind of ignorant of these details and finally she oh yes also is betrothed to a quote-unquote renowned pillow biter yeah um i think because you mentioned about jamie's honor but i also think he dropped another good reason for why he rejected tywin's offer and that's like um, if I stay in the Kingsguard, I get to stay here in King's Landing with you, mm. and I won't. Because if he if he went back to Castle Rock, he'd probably be forced to marry. Yeah, um, you know, to continue their line, and the Kingsguard is an easy way for him to dodge all that, so he can stay with Cersei. Because it seems like 
Yeah. The crazy son of a bitch really loves Cersei. It really does in this scene. Um, and now that he's back, he wants to continue right where they left off. So uh, why does she reject? We talked about why he rejected Tywin. Why does Cersei reject Jamie? I I think it comes down to just how bitter she is about him being gone. I, yeah. it, it definitely, like watching this scene the entire time, I'm saying not his fault, not his fault on everything she says. Sure. Uh, he got captured. He literally couldn't be there, uh, or he would have been. But it feels to me like she is still bitter because of that. Right. And he and over those years, or over that year, she has just grown so bitter that now she can't forgive him, even though it's not his fault. And we know that they were fraternal twins, so they've been together literally since birth. Mm, and yeah. they've been in an intimate relationship since their early teenage years, it seems. So this might be the very first time that she's ever had to go for extended periods because as soon as as soon as they she married to Robert, Jamie took up the Kingsguard. Yeah. Um so this might be the very first time that they've had to be apart for any extended period of time. Yeah. And maybe her uh that that kind of betrayal or that hurt uh has let you know made her grow cold towards him. I don't know. Yeah, and there's also um, in the Blackwater episode, the Hound, of course, leaves the side of the king mm-hmm. uh, and just abandons him. Maybe she's a little angry that Jamie wasn't there to help fight that war for them, to help protect King's Landing as well. And, you know, the family and their throne and everything. Yeah. He's the After Barristan was thrown out, he's the Lord Commander of the Kingsguard, for God's sake. So yeah. she probably thinks that he should have been there fighting. And, and also, um, I think there is not any small amount of issue she has with the fact that he's got one hand now <laughs> okay he's got Does one he hand need two two hands to please her what's going on <laughs> um can't get enough purchase <laughs> with that one hand well nina over project fandom made all the detachable dildo attachments <laughs> jokes that one could make in a podcast so okay. i can't really tread on that ground except for to observe that stump alone I mean, oh yeah jamie's a one-man dp engine now <laughs> Um, but no, I think that, uh, the, you know, the Cersei's kind of shallow and vain Yeah. and Jamie was famous for being the best swordsman in the kingdom. And now he's just a dude that couldn't protect her and abandon her when she needed him and maybe not be able to protect him in the future. And that's probably a big blow to their relationship. Throughout this episode, it does seem like Jamie is determined to still try to be the best. I don't know whether he'll succeed at that, but even with just his left hand, I think he wants to train and become the best again. So that was interesting. Uh, One other question I have about this scene, and you mentioned kind of, you know, why Jamie would want to stay here, but do you think the other end of that with Casterly Rock is Tywin trying to get Jamie out of here so that the rumors that have been spreading will be kind of dispelled a little bit? He did seem overly concerned with that last... I mean, that was the stated reason he's marrying her off to Sir Loras. That, you know, this is going to end these disgusting rumors about you. And if you can split them apart, like, you're at Castle Rock, you're at King's Landing, you're married. The yes, I definitely see. Yeah, and if if Jamie is so worried about breaking a second oath, what happens when a second marriage is ruined by their incest? Mm. (laughs) That would be bad news for the Lannisters. Nothing good. That's... that's, that's Pretty good insight. Uh, so we see the payoff from last scene as uh, Sansa's lady comes in to give a report. Apparently she's been kind of spying on her this whole time. 
We go just south of the wall. It's looming large in CGI fashion. And oh in, wait, in the wait, background. wait! I missed that. So Sansa's handmaiden or whatever yeah, she, she is, she bursts in at the end and says, "Forgive me, your great." Or, I think she calls. So it she's your telling grace. Cersei about what's going on with Sansa. Apparent, apparent. Well, not with Sansa, but with Tyrion and or, Shea. Yeah, with Tyrion and Shea. Uh oh, we know what they did. To, we know what she tried to do to Tyrion's last whore. She got the mm-hmm. wrong whore. Yeah, now she might have the right one. And her son finished a job. Okay. So anyway, south of the wall in some godforsaken canyon, Egret is making all the arrows. Uh, Tormund comes up and accuses her of letting John go because apparently she can hit a rabbit in the eye with an arrow from 200 yards, which as an abutting archer myself, I laugh heartily. <laughs> uh, I don't care if you're fucking Legolas, that's not going to happen. But whatever, she's a hell of an archer. Um then they kind of she accuses him right back of sitting on his ass rather than going to war because she's all about getting out the crows now and breaking up this debate uh, is the Thins who come in marching looking fierce as hell. Uh, we find out that they're cannibals and what did you what was your first impression of the Thins? Uh, they look very intimidating. Uh, they look like a, a Romulan from the new Star Trek or something. Um, it. I think they introduced their cannibalism in a really good way. They kind of roughly hinted at it and then got a little more specific and a little more specific. Once they said marbled, mm. the only commentary during which marbled is appropriate is food. Right. And that's exactly what the crows were. Uh, yeah. Um, I thought it is interesting because these guys do seem to intimidate even the other wildlings. Mm. And uh, I gotta say, if you're going to eat a part of a person, I don't know. I'd go with the the arm. It's <laughs> like the equivalent of a chicken wing, right? I mean, when you get you get the ass and thigh right there. I mean, that's that's mm. where the real action's at. If you want to, if sure. you want to, if you want to introduce someone to roasted crow, uh, to eating crow, not in the sense of uh, having chagrin for your actions, but in literally eating another human being, I, I'd go with the ass and thighs. All right, ass and thighs. That's that's, that's where the the you know well marbled meat's going to be. Aaron's an ass and thigh man. <laughs> Found that out today. Um, any other observations on these guys? Nope. Does seem like they're just as impatient as Egret about getting getting down to business at the wall and uh, almost kind of mutinous about not waiting for Mance Raider. Where do you think see that going? Who's mutinous about not the waiting for are saying that, you know, we want to go... They, they're kind of like, why are we waiting for Mance's signal? As he famously said, I'm going to light the fi- fire the big, uh, so big the North has yeah. ever seen is like, or the biggest fire the North's ever seen. And that's their uh, signal to attack south of the wall. Yeah. Um, why are they in such a damn hurry? Uh, to attack? I, I don't know. I mean, maybe they, they just want to get, get some more marbled crows? meat. Yeah. Uh, um, but it seems like that's a bad plan. I mean, when you can't communicate with your groups across these vast distances and over this giant wall, it seems like the plan you make is the plan you need to stick to once you get across the wall. So going in early is just a recipe for disaster. But, you know, that's exactly what John told Egret last year about why they can't win. You're oh, yeah. not, you have 100,000 people, but you're no army. Yeah, good point. You have no discipline. You've got no training. Your equipment sucks. So... Um, anything else to say before we move on? Well, the good thing about the Thin Army is they don't have to carry any food with them. That's true. <laughs> they don't have to march they can in travel their bellies. Light. Yeah. yeah. 
Uh, moving on at the wall at the Castle Black, uh, John is talking about uh, to uh, talking about Rob uh, to Sam Sam Tarley and how he wanted to hate him all his life because he's better at everything and he was a, he was a legitimate Stark had a way with the ladies but he never could because he's just such a nice guy. Yep. Uh, Sam confided that he sometimes wanted to hate him too because he's better at everything except for reading. <laughs> Uh, we, we also know from this and the scene with, yeah, I feel like there's a lot of scenes that have established that we are a few weeks, if not a month or two past where we left off. Uh, Jamie's, the condition of his stump was another good symbol, Mm -hmm. but you can tell that John's, you know, he, he was, uh, on death's door when we last saw him with three arrows sticking out of him and his wounds have begun to heal. He still winces getting dressed. He still has a bit of a limp, but he's strong enough to stand trial. Yeah, for being uh, an, an oath breaker, uh, Alistair Storn, which if you remember, he is the uh, kind of mastered arms at the wall, and the guy he was who tra- hates John. He hates John uh, for un- I never understood fully <laughs> why he hated John. Yeah, me either. I he demonstrated how good he was at swordplay and stuff, but I don't know why Alistair would hate him for that. There's probably a book reason I've forgotten. Like I could see a guy like. You know, at this time, the, the wall used to be a fairly prestigious place for second and third sons to go to to, to attain glory. You know, because yeah. you can't, you know, you can't really hold lands and titles anyway because your older brother is going to get it. So head up to the wall and see the world and blah blah blah. But in John's time, that that favor that the bloom has fallen off the rose. Hmm. So I wonder if it's like. You know, he's just very bitter, disillusioned Night's Watchman, and John comes in there all fresh-faced and eager and still thinking this is a good deal, and he just wanted to take him down a peg. Yeah, probably. I don't know. Um, but uh, we also see Jano Slint, who we last saw uh, Tyrion banish him through the wall for, uh, among other things, killing, uh, betraying Ned Stark. Uh, Tyrion decided he couldn't trust him since he betrayed the last hand, so he <laughs> sent him up through the wall and stripped him of his lands and titles. And he has now become Thorne's chief lapdog. One thing I noticed is Kit Harrington's acting as John has taken a huge leap, just judging by this scene huh. and the last one. Um, a lot of people can, you know, complain about him kind of being a whiner and, and having a flat effect. But I thought he really was a, uh, a dynamic and powerful figure, both when he's stalking off saying, I've done plenty wrong. And defending himself during the trial. What did you think? Yeah, I think you're right. I think he feels more like his brother Rob at this point. Um, Or he's growing into that role, which I think is fitting, considering the conversation that they have where he has always kind of admired his brother. So so now that he has a little bit of experience outside of Winterfell, uh, he's kind of hardening up and and becoming uh, a more serious contender. So the trial goes back and forth with him saying, you know, I didn't kill the half-hand. It was, I was under orders, but I also broke my oath by sleeping with a woman, uh, a wild, <laughs> a wilding woman at that. Uh, That's silly, right? Because condemning him for sleeping with a wildling when he is undercover with the wildlings is like condemning an under, like arresting an undercover cop for doing coke yeah. when he's undercover in the drug, right. in the drug cartels. right. Like, that's what you send him there to do, so what do you want? Well, no one accused Janus of being a uh, sharpest uh, sword in the armory. But, <laughs> uh, and, and the master, Eamon, 
or Maester Aemon pretty much points that out. It's like, look, if we beheaded every ranger that slept at the whore in Molestown, we wouldn't, you know, have anybody left to defend us. Um, he also gets really into it with with uh, Slint because he's talking about marching with hundred thousand of giants, and I thought it was a nice moment how Janos Slint's like giants. <laughs> this boy's talking, and then he looks over at the other guys, and they're just like stone faced. Yeah, which is interesting that there's a part of Westeros that has no there that it'd be like I don't know us making fun of Canadians for believing in grizzly bears. <laughs> Okay. You know, it's 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 odd that just across the border, and I get we don't have a 700-foot wall, uh, a tall wall between us and Canada. At least the Canadians haven't erected it yet <laughs> to keep us crazy, savage Americans <laughs> from overrunning their polite borders. But it's it just funny to me how out of touch King's Landing is. Sure. Anyway, uh, the upshot is uh, Master Eamon lays, lets him off the hook because he believes that he's telling the truth. And uh, I thought it was a good line about, you know, where did you get this magical talent? He goes, like, I grew up in King's Landing. Again, yeah, that's funny. you know, people for, uh, I don't know if people remember this, but uh, this guy is a Targaryen, uh, brother of the Mad King Eris. So he's seen some shit in his day. Oh, yeah. Uh, going back down to King's Land- La- Landing... We see the Lady Olena with her granddaughter, Marjorie Tyrell, dismissing all the necklaces. Uh, we know the wedding is in two weeks. Uh, she makes uh, Marjorie makes a bad joke about Joffrey giving her a string of sparrowheads, which... Mm-hmm. What do you think of her saying, you watch that, even here with me? That's weird to me, because in this very location, they encourage Sansa to speak out about how much she hated Joffrey and what her problem was with him. Right. Uh, I think that what's happening here is she's just trying to get it into the head of Marjorie. Don't ever say anything like that. Now that you're going to be his wife. Right. Like the no place is safe. Right. So I don't know. And maybe her, um, her dealings with Varys, he's the the eunuch, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, maybe her dealings with Varys have kind of enlightened to her, her to just how many people are listening and where they might be. Right. Because we know he has a lot of uh, people on the lookout. So I also wonder if there's a little bit to this about, you know, she's fine with doing things that they have to do, like getting Sansa to talk about Joffrey so they knew who they're dealing with is something they had to do. Mm-hmm. And it's something largely, you know, Sansa was the one committing treason. But to just do that as a joke. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's like the, she loves making jokes, and she loves making jokes at others' expenses, but she's also, you can tell, a very serious minded woman a very formidable woman mm-hmm. who's been able to i mean last season we saw her dispatch without difficulty Varys, Tyrion, and fucking tywin lannister yeah um although tywin eventually got the better of her <laughs> better of her it still is you know she is is a powerful form, formidable uh, woman uh where is that going with this oh so this scene seems to be set up so Brienne can come and talk to Marjorie. Lady Elena was delighted about, you know, just how fucking awesome Brienne is. <laughs> and I got to meet Gwendolyn Christie a couple months ago and interview her at the Walker Stalker Con Chicago. And mm-hmm. I'm a tall dude. I'm dating a tall woman. It's still my first reaction when I saw her coming up to me and she was wearing like three inch heels was like, shit, this is a tall this is an impressive specimen of a woman yeah she's really tall 
and and super intimidating, even dressed in you know casual street clothes. Yeah. Uh, when she's in her kind of like uh, you know knight's uniform, <laughs> it's 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 just it's just uh, amazing. Yeah, but you talk to her and she's super sweet. Yeah, she's super sweet, super intelligent. I'll probably uh, in a, at a good point sometime talk about that, and I hope. I hope sometime during the airing of this that they'll release that interview on the video so we can we can share it because she had a lot of really good takes, especially on like oh, fem- yeah. feminism in Game of Thrones mm-hmm. and her character's relationship with Jamie. Anyway, uh, they discuss uh, Marjorie and her discussing private the Shadow Killer, yeah, um, and Stannis and all that. Um, what do you think was the purpose of this scene? That's a that is a really good question. Um I'm not quite sure where the shadow baby stuff factors in, but there was one thing I noticed about their conversation is when she says that I will avenge our king mm-hmm. when she's talking to Marjorie, um they're talking about Rinley because the Rinley was killed by the Shadow Baby. Right. Uh that seems weird to me that she would say this to Marjorie, who is about to be married to their actual king, right. Joffrey. Um, I'm not sure why she would say that to her. Do you have any opinion on that? Well, the first thing, first of all, this is all stuff invented for the television show. This did not, you know, Brienne does make it to King's Landing, but it's much later and she has no contact with Marjorie. Oh, okay. So- My first thought is that uh, so this isn't book speculation. This is just me trying to extrapolate. Um, my first thought is that Brienne truly loved Rinley. Mm-hmm. Um, tragically, because Rinley could never return that love. Yeah, I think that was shown right. on, on screen fairly well. Oh, yes. Um, and so I think her forgetting herself was an indi- indication of the loyalty that she still feels towards that man. Mm, okay. And I also think the scene's purpose was to some... Now that we have Brienne you know, uh, going around King's Landing, a viewer might think, well, wait a second. Last time Marjorie saw Brienne, Brienne was fleeing the camp under suspicion amongst all her men of of killing yeah. the king. Uh-huh. Uh, she was the one accused, and Kat's like, we gotta get the fuck out of here, or we're not gonna make it out alive. Yeah. So it might be just uh, for us viewers that would have that opinion to be like, look, they've made up. That Brienne told her what she saw. Marjorie obviously believes her, and everything's smooth, so we don't have to worry about, you know, okay. what's going to happen, or if, Mar- if Brienne's going to get in trouble, or what's what's going to happen with that. It might just be a way for them to shorthand address because it was a very small scene, yeah, and also allowed them to be walking in this this <laughs> this garden, and we see the statue of Joffrey uh, standing atop the wolf. Ah, oh, just insufferable. This statue. But it bookends so nicely the next scene because it, does, it goes yes. completely into him in the exact same self-satisfied smug mm-hmm. um, pose, and he's the, he's in the Lord Commander of the Knight of the King's Guard's chambers, and they're planning his, his Jamie, his father. We know mm-hmm. uh, is planning the security detail for the for the king, and uh, Jamie seems like he starts off wanting to try to rein in a little bit on Joff's arrogance, reminding him like, Hey, you know, you owe a big debt to, uh, your queen, your future queen and my father. And, you know, no small part me leading your armies and Joff's not having any of it. Joff feeds the people. Joff wins the armies. Joff does all this stuff. Yeah. And we talked in the preview cast or the instant cast about 
his completely lack his completely being out of touch with his own achievements. Absolutely. Yeah. And like we you know whether he believes it or not and I think that statue of him on top of the direwolf that mm-hmm. harkens back to the conversation his mother and him had in season 1 where he got bit by Nemiria, mm-hmm. uh, Arya's wolf and you know he's all butt hurt about it. And Cersei's like, when one day you're going to be the queen king, and you can make history be whatever it, you you want it to be. Sure. And he's now retconned that as him dis, dis, defeating the direwolf that yeah. Ned Stark beheaded, and he has you know destroyed Stannis at the Blackwater, and it's fascinating. And it is. the look on Jamie's face. Well, let me ask you. Jamie looks distraught and various things throughout the scene. What is all going through his head? Wow. Um, <clears throat> before or after Joffrey opens the book? Just during the whole <laughs> sequence. It goes, I mean... Okay. He, he, he's he's trying to figure out why the hell, I think, at the beginning of this, Joffrey is uh, pretending like he actually had something to do with all of this. Um, Joffrey's standing there completely dismissing the security planning. Doesn't mm. give a shit about his own wedding security. Right. Uh, he's staring up at his armor right. and his swords above the, the fireplace. Right. I think he very much does believe that he had a big part in saving King's Landing, hmm. even though he he's got to know somewhere the events that happened didn't sure. don't don't bear that out. Sure. Um, but I think Jamie is kind of observing him and looking and saying, "How does this kid think that he had anything to do with that?" Because I'm sure he's heard the stories now of how Tyrion worked and how uh, Tywin came in at the last moment and actually saved the city. Yeah, and I also think there's more than a little bit of, oh my god, that's my son. Okay. My son is a fucking <laughs> cunt. And and how does he approach that? Because what are you going to do? Right. I mean, he's... He's supposed- apparently taken no interest in him yeah. and his upbringing or being a father at this point. Now he's at this conversion... He realized how vicious and and stupid, like yeah. Tyrion said, you know, yeah. we've had a cruel king and we've had <laughs> uh, idiot kings, but we've never had a vicious idiot king before. Yeah, and it's horrifying. And then when he goes after Jamie, I think Jamie feels very vulnerable there too. Oh yeah, oh yeah. Even though he's joking and he's saying, "Oh, I'm planned. All I've got to do is be better than the rest of them," right? Uh, with my left hand, but I, I think that really got to him. Do you think that uh, the other Kingsguards, like Sir Marin Trant, seem to be a little insolent with him, too? Do you think they smell a little blood in the water? Hmm. I didn't pick up on that. Yeah, he's like, hey, you know, I'm I'm in the one guarding the king ever since you've been gone. Oh, yeah. And he was a little testy with him when he got reassigned, and then he seemed to be, you know, fully yeah. go, go, you know, sucking on Joffrey's Well, I, I can understand that. I mean, if you're the guy who's running the show and— sure. The the king's son, or the not even the king's son, the hand of the king's son comes back, and all of a sudden you're demoted, and he takes your place. Yeah, that's got to be a little off putting. Uh, anything else? Uh, no. Oh, well, I mean, there's also a lot of if you want to go back and freeze frame, frame on some of this, mm-hmm. uh, a lot of the stuff about uh, Sir Arthur, um, Sir Arthur Dane's sort of the morning. There was a lot of stuff in here written about the events that went down between Rhaegar and Lyanna and the, oh, nice. the um, uh, Ilya uh, Martell and how they were massacred and all that. There's a lot of kind of history that we've been talking about and it kind of ties it all in together. Mm-hmm. And a poor Jamie only has the half page of him basically being a betrayer. 
Uh, yeah, I, I really didn't realize how young Jamie was when he went when he was appointed to the Kingsguard. Yeah, at the time, he's the youngest 16. one ever made. Yeah, yeah, well, ever minted. Um, I thought that might have meant like twenty five or something. So all right. sixteen is crazy. So let's go back over the narrow sea over to S, uh, over to Danny and her camp, and we see Dario uh, coming up to talk to Danny about a quote unquote matter of strategy. Which is his strategy of getting into her pants. Uh, he gives her a bouquet and guise of teaching her about the land and its people. He uh, does. To be fair, he's got a solid point. You have to know the land and the people before you can rule them, right? Uh, yeah, because a, fuck, a bunch of freed <laughs> slaves are going to completely turn their nose up at their uh, savior <laughs> because she doesn't know how to brew dusk, tea of the dusk rose. Yeah. Uh, well, if she brews them all poison tea, she won't have an army either. So, <laughs> yeah, because that's what a queen does. She spends all her time serving tea <laughs> to her subjects. Yeah, um, it makes me and wonder. E- and eating bread and honey, according to the nursery room. How does Dario know uh, about all this stuff in this land? Is he from here? Uh, he, he and this, in in addition to being lieutenant of. Uh, Cell Sword Company. He's also a famous botanist and floral ranger. <laughs> ranger. That can't be true. <laughs> uh, you you almost got me there. Okay, so he's just a well traveled guy. Yeah, it seems like yeah he's he's um, you know I, I, what's the what's the equivalent to, like he like a legionnaire I guess that's a, what a Cell Sword like a mer, you know to, mm. these mercenaries and they travel the world and go to engagement after engagement and he's just trying to impress upon her that you know she's the stranger from Westeros still and you know he's got some he's he's basically trying to I guess get her to subscribe to his charms okay I don't think he's doing a very good job no, speaking uh, of not doing a very good job <laughs> yeah uh, Dario 2.0, mm-hmm. who I'm going to bequeath the title Dario uh, Nyquilis, <laughs> because every time I start thinking about talking, <sighs> um, okay. I like the the other crooked teeth, leering, insolent <laughs> Dario better than this guy. This guy seems so far to be very uninspired. What's your take on him? Uh I wouldn't have guessed this if if you showed me Dario 1.0 and you mm. said there will be a guy who you like worse, uh-huh. who you like less right. than this guy. I would have said no, no, that's not possible. Yeah, because he was so creepy. Um, yeah, this, he was this, very brash. He was very he had this dangerous Euro trash vibe about him. <laughs> he did. He like, did. Like he's an he was an extra in a, a James Bond movie uh, or yeah or, or like Triple X. No, he's like the guy that the villain in Triple X ran around with. <laughs> Pretty much, yeah. Uh, I could see him in maybe like a transporter flick. There you. He's a something. transporter villain. Yeah. In fact, did, <laughs> wait a second. Did you know that? That's no why what? he got recast. He's he he's he's. Oh, that's why I thought it. You told me that earlier. Oh, okay, because yeah. I'm like, dude, if you came up with that, <laughs> I just had a moment. No, he he that's left came from, to yeah. participate. I'm not sure if he's starring in a reboot of it or if he's the stereotypical Euro trash villain. <laughs> I think he is, but he looks like it. He does. totally like that. Did not surprise me the least when I read that. Yeah, and but there was something about his connection with Daenerys that felt more real. Um, and maybe it's just that this episode was one where the new Dario was getting chastised and thrown to the back of the marching line. Maybe we were not supposed to like him as much this episode, but I, I don't like the new one as much. 
I was he doesn't a, have any kind of edge to him. He's very bland. I was having a conversation with Nina over at uh, Project Fandom on her Facebook page, and she was saying that in book Dario and season three Dario, you get this feeling that this is a dangerous guy that like Danny's girlfriends are like, girl, stay away from this yeah. guy. He's no good for you. For sure. You don't want to take him around to your papa and I, all this other stuff. And this guy very much seems like someone you would take home to your mom. Sure. And he would, you know, have you back by 10 o'clock. I think what they should have done curfew. is cast Matthew McConaughey, because he's kind of got the look of the old guy. Shit. And you know he can act like the old guy and act it better. He so. comes in, all right, all right, all right. Here's <laughs> just, what's going to happen. Naked with some bongos. Just put a, a wig on him. <laughs> a long-ass wig, and you're good. And a big blue beard. <laughs> Just basically old rust from uh, True Detective. <laughs> With a can of beer in his hand. Throw him, throw him in that armor and you're done. <laughs> done. Shit, he could have just he, he could have done that in between takes of True Detective. For sure. It's, it's HBO property, right? Yeah. Uh, on to less cool news. Uh, we see that Danny's uh, company is rode upon to a mile marker pointing towards Marine. Problem is it's got a child crucified to it. <laughs> With her finger yeah. pointing the way. Gruesome. Uh, Jorah helpfully reminds us they're 163 miles away, and he they they offer, I think Barristan offers to, uh, you know, cut these down so she doesn't have to see it. She's like, nope, I want to see each face. So how do they know that there's a child hanging from each of these posts? Do they have a scout 163 miles ahead saying, yeah, there's one on all these? I think okay, so this is book, or a mile is, ahead, and assuming there's there are two of them, so there must be all of them. This is book knowledge, and I'm not sure if this got lost in the editing, or we are supposed to surmise this or what. But it's not a spoiler. Calm down, people. If you Dragon think it is. scouts. Um, the in the books they have ridden past dozens of these children already, but Danny oh. doesn't ride to the front, and they've taken upon themselves to cut them down to spare her the horror of seeing it. Oh. And she finds out and is livid and is like, no, you will not. I okay. will see each and every one of these children's face before we ride it past It seems them. like they could have conveyed that very quickly and very easily. I, that's what I'm saying. I wonder if it wasn't an editing thing. It must because, have been. Although I don't know how many people would see that scene and think, wait a second. How do they know there's going to be a, a, a kid on every mile? I'm not calling bullshit on it. No, I'm just wondering. You could also say, without using book knowledge, that if someone has, if there's a kid on mile marker 163, three uh-huh there's gonna be several more but yeah he did well, say if, there's gonna be one on each and every one yeah if if they were scouting ahead to the second one mm-hmm. okay i can see that there's there are two of them oh they're probably gonna be on all yeah their outriders have already reported that there's yeah there's, uh, so i assume these guys are smart enough to have scouts i uh, you would think so i would hope so <laughs> Uh, but I also like to touch that she wanted them to remove her slave collar before the barrier that even mm. that she's like wants her to be treated as a free a free woman yeah. in death, she's which is even freeing the dead. Yep. Okay. Uh, so we go back to Westeros where Sansa's in the pitiful Godswood that passes for a south of the south of the north, south of the neck, south of the Riverlands Godswood. Uh-huh. I'm book nerding out. Never mind. Let's move I, on. Okay. <laughs> uh, Jamie and Brienne are seeing her and debating his oath to return to Stark daughters to safety or keep them safe. Mm-hmm. Um, Jamie, we can tell because uh, some people had a problem, you know, judging by my feedback, and they're like, "We don't like this." This is Jamie sliding back in his own ways. I don't mm, see that because he's not de- de- he's not debating with Brienne about. Yeah, this is my oath, but he's he's more debating like, "What do you want me to do?" Where? Yeah. I know she's not safe. Where should I take her? Exactly. 
Um, where yeah. do you think you should take her? If you wanted to... I think she should go out to where Littlefinger is, because Littlefinger, I think, would have the capability to at least see any attempt on her life coming and, and try to get her out of harm's way. Because I, I don't think Jamie has the knowledge that, that Littlefinger has about this world. Oh, yeah. I'll, I'll, I, I don't even, I'll I don't even think that. Tyrion does. I think Littlefinger, if you're looking for information, Littlefinger is the guy. You could fit what Jamie knows about the world into a thimble, probably. <laughs> okay. um, into a hollow golden hand. <laughs> uh, all right, any other thoughts? Because that, yeah, that's I mildly there, interesting. I thought there was one more thing in this scene. I'm not sure if I'm crazy here, but do you think that Jamie is hitting on Brienne at all? Because he's asking her, oh, are you sure you're not a Lannister? You could be with your hair, if not for the looks. <laughs> That's something I wondered a lot during this novel. There's a, it felt like a slight bit of flirting going on. I also there. thought the time where they were having that meeting in the, uh, they were having the, the really intense discussion in the uh, Harrenhal hot tubs. Yeah, and he was confessing, was and he was disrespectful to her, and she like stood up, you know, full naked, and like I, you know, like I'm ready, I'm ready to throw down now, motherfucker. Yep, and he looked at her with. A little bit of respect, but I thought that there might have been like a hint of a little bit of interest there. I thought so too. Yeah, um, and I mean, he would have stood up to meet her, but you know, yeah, he, you know, <laughs> his uh, his 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 DP engine wasn't wasn't fully healed and ready yet. No, I that's something I've always wondered because you know, I know she's always described as very homely in the books. She's much less so in the series, but mm, then yeah. again, Arya is always described as very homely in this, in the, the, the books. And she, but her father describes her favorably to her aunt, uh, Liana, who's one of the most beautiful women in the, in the king, uh, the, 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 the seven kingdoms. So I, I think maybe some of that is a commentary on, from George Martin about how women who don't, fit in their gender roles are perceived by the men of Westeros. Hmm. Okay. Um, it's, it's, I, I mean, that, that's just me. Uh, um, but I, when I see descriptions of Brienne, they're talking about how she's got, you know, high cheekbones and blonde hair and thick sensual lips. And she's got crooked teeth and, uh, and, 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 and deep blue eyes. I'm like, Oh my God. Yeah. She's hideous. She's obviously hideous. I mean, it doesn't sound like a hideous woman. Same thing when they describe yeah. Arya, and then there's like, oh, she's a horse face. Uh, you know, it's like they just described an attractive woman. Uh, so it's and like called her horse face. Yeah, but you know, there again, they're the women that wear the pants and and hold swords, and they're a threat to that patriarchy. Hmm. So yeah, and I think you know, Cersei is the opposite. Cersei is this goddess, this golden goddess who's perfect in face and body. And the perfect compliment to Jamie, but he's starting to see that there's a lot that does there's not much going on beyond that surface. Where Brand's the exact opposite. She's yeah. she's a warrior like him, um, but has held on her honor intact despite all odds. Mm -hmm. And there's tons of depth to her. So do I see them as potentially and this again isn't any book knowledge, um, because the story hasn't advanced much uh, to that point yet, but mm -hmm. I always thought that that was would be an interesting possibility. I think so too. And I could totally ship Brianna Jamie. Yeah, definitely. The more Jamie opens up, and the more we see of Jamie, 
I feel like he's got way more in common with Brienne than Cersei. On the other hand, I've heard I've I had a discussion with some people in Chicago uh, that were kind of horrified by my take on that because they have such this this you know mutual respect and like you know comrade at arms and deep understanding of each other. Mm-hmm. And they don't want that to be reduced to just a romantic interest. But to me, sure. that's a f- fucking awesome foundation for a relationship. Yeah, it absolutely can be. And to see that evolve is okay with me. You know, I mean, if it, if it evolves toward a romantic relationship, I'm okay with that. All right. Speaking of Sansa being in safety, I really like this next uh, scene mm-hmm. that they uh, uh, they filmed it like a Sam Raimi old school slasher fl- flick that she's being stalked in these woods and there's a shadowy figure behind her and she hears the footsteps and she's getting panicked. But then it's just drunk Sir Dantos, um, who you did you recall him because this was a oh, yeah. this was a deep cut back into season two literally the first episode of season two yeah i did a rewatch right before we started this so mm-hmm. um i recalled that immediately and, and hbo did uh on the preview they did a lot of heavy lifting and helping people catch up to you know they had like a two minute like here's all the three second scenes you need to properly understand and jog your memory yeah uh because i bet there would be a lot of people saying what the fuck if they hadn't shown the scene of him Joffrey trying to drown him in wine. They don't do that on HBO Go. I know. I know it starts right up with the sword. Right, right, right. Um, I guess they, they, they're catering to binge watchers on that. Sure. Uh, anyway, he wants to thank her because he might be a fool and he might be disgraced from a once powerful or a rising house, now a disgraced house. But he wants to thank her for saving his life uh, by offering her the last heirloom he's got. A beautiful necklace that's been... Hand mm-hmm. down from his mother and her mother and her mother before him. Uh, he wants her to take it, wear it, let her name, his name have one last day in the sun before it disappears from the world. Which, beautiful piece of writing and a really excellent acting job by some no-name dude I've ever heard, had never heard of before. Yeah. Uh, I, I wonder what the implication is here where uh, Marjorie and, uh, what is the older lady's name? Olena? Olena. The Queen um, of Thorns. Yeah, they turned down all the necklaces in this episode. Every single one. All the necklaces. And Sansa accepts the only one she's given. Mm. I wonder... Like, I, I'm not smart enough, I guess, to understand the symbolism here. But it feels like there's something there. Do you, Can you give me any insight, or are you... I can just show mild that? interest in anything you have to say. Oh, God. Okay. <laughs> all right. Um, I do think I was talking to, uh, uh, maybe uh, our listeners will clue me in on that. Well, I talked to a workmate and who is not a book reader and mm-hmm. he wondered if this is going to tie into the Shea plot that somehow hmm. that this guy's a cat's paw that is planting a stolen necklace on Sansa that's somehow hmm. going to, since that's, since Shay is her chief maiden, mm-hmm. that it's going, that, that that's actually, you know, I don't know. It's going to be some stolen goods. It's going to just, it's going to uh, give Cersei the pretext to have Shay executed, or it's going to be leverage against uh, Tyrion or something along that. What do you think of that theory? Uh, it's as good a theory as any. All right. <laughs> Let's move on. Uh, we see the best part of the episode for mm-hmm. me: Arya and the Hounds traveling roadshow. They've taken up the torch from Jamie and Brienne of last year. Uh, Arya uh, wants a pony. <laughs> uh, we see them riding through this forest of death. It's just corpses and burning and disgusting things everywhere. 
Um, she wonders why he doesn't have any money, why he didn't steal anything from King's Landing. And he's like, you know, I'm not a thief. Which allows her, him to quote one of the other HBO all-time badasses, Omar Little, when he says, a man's got to have a code. Um, another callback here pretty, uh, pretty soon, too. But that was yeah. one of them. And we find that his plan is to ride to the Vale to ransom her to her aunt, who's Lady Arya, which you'll recall has the eight-year-old son <laughs> that's still not weaned off the, the sugar tit. Mm-hmm. Uh, the sight of her, of, of Sandor, which I'm going to call Colonel Sandor from now on because he does chickens right. <laughs> uh, the sight of him and Arya standing there in those bushes. Uh-huh. With like he's got there's a giant hole for his face to stick out of, and then three foot down there's a giant hole for her face, mm-hmm. and they're watching Polliver take a piss. It seemed like something so out of like Benny Hill or Monty Python, like a quintessential British uh, comedy. Yeah, and, and I thought there's so much humor to this scene until things got fucking real because there's the you know what the fuck's me and. And mm-hmm. the farce of him being like, "You can't go in there. We're we're not going in there." And then a guy walks out and sees this fucking hulking beast, and yeah, then they're committed, right? And he's not going out there. <laughs> no, no, he's like, "I was going to piss, but uh, <laughs> occupied. I'm going back in." Yep. So they walk in. They see the men assaulting a barmaid. We reintroduce the Poliver, who we last saw killing. Uh, the the Lomni speaking of what the fuck a Lomni is with running running him through with Ari's needle. Uh, he recognizes Sander and goes to chat up the Hound, but he quickly grows tired of the, of uh, Poliver's bullshit. <laughs> Poliver wants him to ride and go reaving with them, uh, mm-hmm. him and the rest of Gregor, his brother's men. Uh, but Sander says fuck the king, and Arya's look is precious there. <laughs> and then it just devolves into basically a Quentin Tarantino standoff. Hell yeah. What What are your thoughts on this scene before we discuss it much further? Uh, so I wanted to talk a little about the bookends in this scene. Okay. Because we have... I can't tell you how the books end, Jim. <laughs> I mean, you got to get it... Th- this is only our first real episode, but you can't keep asking me how okay. the books end, all right? Sure. I'll stop that. Um, So we start off with Arya... Just whining incessantly about everything, about not having a pony, about being hungry. Mm-hmm. Everything you can whine about, she's whining about it. Uh, and it seems like over the course of this scene, there's a fundamental shift in the relationship to the point where she's got her own pony, something that the hound said would never happen. Mm-hmm. I will. Ne- do you think I would give you your own horse? Mm-hmm. Well, he does at the end of this, and it's because I think she saves him or, or at least helps him out. I don't know if she necessarily saved his life. Um, but there's a, a fundamental shift and it feels like they've been moving very, very slowly. And maybe like they would take a step forward and then a step back mm-hmm. in these previous seasons. I'm hoping this is an actual step forward and that maybe by the time that they arrive, uh, at the breastfeeding queen, they, <laughs> they will, she's the, she's not the God of tits, she's, <laughs> but she's the queen of tits and whiners. <laughs> Awesome. Uh, I'm hoping there will be a very different relationship that they have once they arrive, maybe to the point where he won't even want to ransom her anymore. All right. It feels like it's headed there, and I'm okay with that. She's got a horse and a sword, so she's certainly... Yeah. yeah he's got to take her serious on, on some level at this point. Mm-hmm. Um, but I just... The dialogue in the scene, you know, where the hound's like... like uh, says, hey, bring me one of them chickens. <laughs> <laughs> and then Poliver's like, you don't understand the situation, friend. He's like, I get it. You're a talker. 
listening to talkers makes me thirsty. And he grabs <laughs> the dude's drink and just drinks it in one gulp. And he's just keeping eye contact with him the whole time. Yeah. It's so badass. Not only does he want the chickens, but now he's drank your beer. And he's, 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 and, and then the second allusion to a uh, former HBO badass from Deadwood season one, um, wild bill uh, when Polliver is saying, you don't understand what's going on here. He goes, I understand if you don't shut your, or if you, if any more words come pouring out of your cunt mouth, which is a direct quote, uh, I'm going to have huh, to eat okay. every chicken in this room. <laughs> that's exact. that's what the, um, a wild bill said to somebody he was gambling with. Okay. It's like your mouth looks like a cunt. It's just like an open. It's he's, it's, <laughs> uh, we debated about the foulest language on a TV show before. I think it was during our Walking Dead wrap-up cast. Mm-hmm. Deadwood takes the cake. Okay. Never been more swears per minute and more colorful swears than on Deadwood. I've never seen it. We need to watch it. It's it. the I think it's the 15th anniversary or maybe the 10th sure. anniversary. It's on Go, so I'll check it out. Yeah, the Natter, Natter cast, the boys have been watching it. I was going to say maybe we could do a, a cast on it. It's only like, Ooh. what, three seasons? Three, maybe, because I never finished it. I got through season one. Okay. And then... Too much foul language for you. <laughs> yes, I was offended. Um, anyway, tables get flipped. The hound goes into beast mode. I love the fight choreography. Yeah. And whichever Double D directed this, I think it was David. Maybe it was Dan. I can't recall. Whichever half of the Double Ds that directed this shows a lot of understanding how you film action because it was gritty. It wasn't too much shaky cam. You got a clear understanding mm. of where it's going. Yeah. They somehow made... Um, the fact that there was multiple people rushing the <laughs> hound that multiple different directions, believable. And like, you know, even a beast like Sandor, uh, it's not like that fight was easy for him to win. Yeah. And how did they do the stop stabbing yourself, stop stabbing yourself <laughs> scene where he makes that guy stab himself in the head? Because that looked so fucking real. I assume that that sword is, is, just, is just CGI. Yeah. But they synchronize the wounds on the guy's face. They do. And, and, and the way they've kind of flipped the camera down along with his head. Yeah. And I think that helps to sell the effect a lot. And for a first-time director, the dynamic camera work where mm. we follow like the, the innkeeper and his daughter up a, a staircase into the loft, and that gives us an interesting new vantage point of the action. Yeah. And they show, phenomenal. they show that the hound sees that as well. Right. Like, he's... He it's looks up as a guy is coming yeah. at him with a sword from below. Right. And he's good enough to block that, but also notice his surroundings. So, um, anyway, there's a lot of really hilarious Reddit uh, memes on this. There was uh, the Los Polos Margulis. <laughs> uh, there was another one where it showed a, a pile of Lannister dead bodies, uh, and it said, winner, winner, chicken dinner. Okay, you're going to have to explain this Margulis thing to me. Because uh, I don't know what this is. So Morgulis is what the uh, faceless man told Arya when he left okay. her and gave her that iron coin. Uh-huh. Uh, Valor Morgulis is uh, Valerian uh, for all men must die. Oh, okay. Didn't know that. So Los Polos would be the chicken must die, <laughs> I guess. <laughs> okay. Um, but it's a you know, Breaking Bad Game yeah. of Thrones mashup. Obviously. So... Uh, the climax of the scene is Arya's kind of hanging out in the win- the wings. The whole time I'm like, oh my god, is she going to get in on this? Is she going to get in on this? When it looks like the, the, the Polliver might get the jump on the Hound, she smashes a, a bowl on someone's head, runs him through with his own longsword, <laughs> hamstrings Polliver with said longsword, reclaims Needle, and then 
an echoing of her experience with him killing Lomni, ask him if your legs are okay. I'm yeah. not gonna, uh, am I going to have to carry you? And then s- brutally stabs him right in the throat and lets him choke to death on his own blood. Yeah. It's... Well, okay, let's just talk about this and how much enjoyment she got. <laughs> okay. How do you feel about this aspect of the scene? Because I saw a lot of reviewers and a lot of feedback where people are like, you know, it's exciting, but it's also heartbreaking that Arya is, you know, becoming this hard psychopathic killer. What's your take hmm. on this? And I'll tell you. Um, yeah, I think they're... I think you can certainly view it that way, and I, I guess I tend to, when I see children uh, killing and the circumstances driving them to killing, which has happened in a couple shows that I watch, uh, <clears throat> I think that's a big part of it, but I know that you have uh, a slightly different opinion on it. So why don't you... I, just, I don't want to steal your opinion here, because I know what it is. My shit is totally unbothered uh by Arya being this killer. Why? This is a woman who saw her father beheaded. It's mm-hmm. a it's it's a woman who's carrying a sword before all this happened anyway. Sure. She then had to flee King's Landing. Almost everyone she befriends is either dies or dies to save her. <laughs> She's been mentored by a series of killers, Cyril Farrell, uh Jack and Hagar, now the Hound. Um, and her family is, gets the shit end of all possible sticks. Yeah. I am not going to be troubled by taking enjoyment from watching this little girl kick ass. And your, your opinion of it is that it's more just about the revenge. It's not her becoming saying, psychotic. It's just her no, getting her I don't think, justified revenge. Yeah. I don't think, I don't get the idea that she's not a... Uh, a morally, I mean, I don't think that she is lacking in empathy here. In fact, I think yeah. it's because of her empathy and her sense of justice that she is doing this. Yeah, I think that's a fair read. I mean, I just, I, I mean, to me, this is this is the same as Cal Drogo dumping a, a cauldron of gold on uh, <laughs> fools what need it. I mean, she <laughs> repaid Poliver in literally his own coin. Yeah, for what he did, and this guy is one of the 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 mountains chief men he was basically complaining about all the torture he had to do because it wasn't fun for him anymore yeah i don't think that stain the the i maybe this this is me showing how fucked up i am but i don't know that killing a person like that is you know going to give one nightmares and make a person psychotic sure i mean i know this I, the, I the, the whole with, with the whole that. you know when you fight a monster or you know you, mm. when you fight a monster Careful you take not care to not to become one yeah. but still I think I know I, when I see Arya become a monster, maybe I'll start worrying about that. But sure. Oh, you said when? That must be a book spoiler. <laughs> <laughs> um, what? No. No, no, no. I'm kidding. Stop uh, starting shit, Jim. So I do want to say that this kill right before, where she smashes a pot on the guy's head and runs him through with his long sword, that felt like it was real because the way she like tries to heft this long sword up. And it's not easy and running just, like, a person slowly, yeah. Like, she's got to use all her effort to just get this into this guy's rib cage. Yep. That felt really real to me. Uh, so then after that, we see Colonel Sander riding out with his bucket of chicken. <laughs> Arya's got her white yeah. pony. How, how many chickens were in those saddlebags? All the chickens. All, all of the chickens? All the chickens, Jim. Good idea. And every fucking chicken in that room. And the end music we play out once again. Thanks for Rob S. for pointing this out. But they play the Stark theme backed up by the militant 
uh, drums of the Game of Thrones theme, and yeah. it eventually just turns into the Game of Thrones theme. Mm-hmm. Shall we play the name game, Jim? Okay, sure. Two Swords. Uh, well, what's the meaning? What's the meaning? Go. I got five bullet points here. Oh, Jesus. I have maybe two. Um, Obviously... Obviously, the two swords that are created from... The two Valerian steel swords. The old Stark sword. Yep. Which has a name that I don't know. Ice. Just ice? Ice. Okay. Ice, Fitting maybe. where they're from. Okay. Yeah, that's, two. that's one. That's one. Oh, you want me to go... Yeah. I thought we were going to trade. Hell no. Um, the other one is the sword that Jamie gets. Uh, actually, I can I could do three here, maybe. The sword that Jamie gets and Needle. Uh, both of these are kind of new swords that are given i guess back to people this episode because jamie now has a sword again all right which is i'm sure nice for him and she's got needleback and i'll throw in one on top of that needleback not nickelback that we saw the starks lost a sword in ice mm. but the starks regained the sword in the form of needle they did so one is the death knell for the past and one might be a hopeful note for the future and if you want to go, uh, although if talk you think about... this story has a happy ending, you haven't been paying attention. <laughs> <laughs> if you want to talk about a little bit of symbolism, uh, and maybe the changing nature of the Hound and Arya's relationship, you could call them two swords. Now, riding together toward whatever, whatever their destination uh, ends up being. Mm-hmm. Uh, I got two more. One is. Uh... There's the two long swords uh, that the Lannister soldiers had in a brothel that were inefficient against the uh, Martell dagger. Mm, yeah. And also the two swords uh, uh, held by Dario and Grey Worm in their bet to win mm. Danny's favor. Yeah, I suppose that should have been more obvious to me. Well, but <laughs> lots of two sword imagery in the two sword uh, title. Uh, yeah. We'll see how that comes in the play next uh, next week, or this weekend rather. Uh, that's all I got for the episode. What do you got? And then we'll get into some light pimping and some feedback because we're running long, I know. Yeah, that's it. Okay. Um, thanks to Dylan J for giving us some suggestions for pimping. But I uh, just want to let everybody know that Amazon currently has all five the paperbacks sold in a bundle for $27. Free shipping with Prime. That's about five bucks a book shipped to your door. And you can get caught up with all the Song of Ice and Fire there is. You can also get the same bundle on Kindle for nineteen ninety nine. Although, I would recommend buying them individually on Kindle, because mm. I found, I actually started with the compendium, and I found it very hard to keep track of where I was in just this giant, you know, if I wanted to flip so back. So it's one volume, one book? It's one thing on Kindle. Wow. And then it's like, you can read for three days, and the progress meter doesn't even roll over a percent. <laughs> oh, geez. Uh, the individual books are four ninety nine a piece, so I think it's... You know, you're 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 spending five more dollars, but I just found it yeah. a lot easier to wield. Yeah, get them like once a month or something, once a week, whatever. Right, because the other thing is like, you know, sometimes I'd want to refer back to a chapter, so I'd hit, go to the table of contents and then want, you know, to find the, the, the previous Aria chapter. Yeah. Well, when you do that on the compendium, you jump back to a whole freaking beginning. And, huh. you know, I guess if you just read and you never jump back or forth, then you'll be fine. But that's my personal recommendation. Uh, if you're going to buy it, use our Amazon affiliate link, amazon.baldmove.com, because then we'll get a teeny tiny cut of those Amazon profits, and we can use them to fund uh, the liquor and uh, bandwidth we need to uh, forge these podcasts ourselves. Yeah, and do new shows. Aren't we covering Fargo? Fargo's coming out week? this week. Yeah. We'll, have, uh, we'll, we'll have some podcasts on that. 
I'm not sure when we'll be releasing that, but we'll we'll have it out. Um, well, you can also uh, do our subbable, subbable.com slash bald move, S-U-B-B-A-B-L-E. Uh, it's a free subscription service that allows you to subscribe to our con- uh, content, um, directly contribute to the production of our podcasts, and also earn cool rewards at the same time. And you can go there, subbable.com slash bald move for the full pitch. Go to baldmove.com. I mean, we, I've got all this linked to every show and the show notes, so you can see all the ways you can support us, including um, you know giving us reviews on iTunes and all of your feedback options. I have a huge stack of feedback to go through. Oh, geez. We're running uh, real long. I know we're so running real long, quick. so I'm going to be as quick as I can. Uh, she wants to know, quick question, is the Red Viper a bisexual in the books? Because I didn't remember that. Hmm. Who's the Red Viper? The Red Viper is another nickname for Prince Oberon. Oh, book spoilers. <laughs> Not mentioned in the show. This is his nickname, man. <laughs> okay. Red Viper. No spoilers there. Um. Anyway, uh, so I would say that it's as strongly hinted in the books that he's bisexual as it is hinted that Loras is gay, which is hmm. you definitely get that flavor, but it doesn't smack you in the face like the show does. Yeah. Um. But, uh. yeah, so that, that, that would be my answer for that. Uh, Levi R. says, I feel for the Lannister boys, Joffrey and Tywin notwithstanding. Events have placed both Tyrion and Jaime in precarious positions. What I'd really like to see is both of them rise together above the pettiness of their sister and father. Oh. I feel like they're both uh, well-placed men of good character, but as you alluded to in the preview cast, Jaime's kind of goodness is not rewarded in this world, and Tyrion has trouble with people taking him serious because of a statue. How touching would it be to see them find a way to work together to assert control from Tywin? That would be sweet. Uh, he also says, and Arya, touching on the point we made at the end, he says, oh boy, Arya, I never thought I'd be so delighted to see a young girl slip a blade into a man's throat, but I loved capital letters that scene. The fact that he didn't even know who she was until the last second, that was cold. Yeah. That, but he did make the connection at the end. Ice cold. Ice cold. Um how she slowly slipped a blade in the fact that she didn't kill him, but she watched him choke on his own blood. And this thing is going to make her well-adjusted, but I do think it was very therapeutic for her. Most of her family has been murdered. Her father's head taken before her own eyes. She needs something tangible, an outlet for all that pain. Good for her. I'm right there with you, uh, Levi. Uh, anything to add before we move on? Kimberly nope. M says, I have to agree with our Aaron about the, or Aaron. Whoops. My secret <laughs> is out. out. Oh, shit. <laughs> Have to agree with Aaron's take about the recasting of Dario as a lady. Wink, um, because I mentioned a preview cast. Like I'm, I, I can't speak as a lady. But oh, I, for I'm... some reason I was thinking recast him as a lady. What? <laughs> Why would you do that? <laughs> uh, Dario Nyquilis, the lady Dario. Uh, <laughs> the magnetism is not there at the recast. Mm-hmm. I was also surprised that they did not try to get an actor who looked anything similar to the original actor. Yep. Um, yeah, that. Matthew like, McConaughey, I'm telling you. Yeah, right, all right, all right. <laughs> Hola, Kimosabe. Uh, I felt the attraction between Danny and Dario was not there in the episode as it was the last season. Hoping that will change, but I won't hold my breath. I will back away a little bit in saying that the Double Ds are not fucking idiots. Mm-hmm. And they they spend money lavishly on this show. And I know this guy's a very accomplished actor from other series. Huh. So... Maybe we just caught him in a bad time. That this, yeah. that you know, that this Dario doing the the field guide to Essos uh, botany is from the books, 
Okay. And so maybe that's not the best showcase for his badass potential or his reckless, sure. dangerous potential. Uh, Janine S., who you might remember from previous seasons as the Dragon Walker. Uh, just a couple of thoughts on the first episode uh, on Joffrey's invincibility. Remember in season one after he's mauled by Nymeria, Cersei was telling him that he could not he could make reality anything he wanted and could have a history to say anything. And now obviously he's taken that to heart. Indeed. On Oberon Martell, oh yeah, I like him already. He's much more interesting even than in the books, and he's fairly interesting there. I feel like I, even though we've been long on this cast, I can't say enough about how great I thought his casting was and his performance. I'm so ridiculously excited that this guy is playing this character. Who are we talking about? Grey Worm? No, Oberon. Oh, yeah. No, he was really good. Alan Suppenwall said he's got this vintage Ricardo Montalban, uh, like <laughs> Wrath of Khan vibe to him, which hmm. I I think he does have that dangerous, oily, sophisticated swagger to him. Sure. I can buy that. Um, she also says in Dario, okay, in the books, he's a Tairashi, I think, and they have a custom to change your hair color and dress Whoa. routinely. Is this spoiler alert or? Nah, it's, okay. it's supporting detail. Maybe this is just a Tairashi fashion change. A little less creepy Dario's fine with me as I couldn't connect them last season. Yeah, I mean, in the books, he's got purple hair and a blue forked beard and gold <laughs> teeth, so. Connect with that. Yeah. Uh, and strangely enough, there's fuckers hanging out on the Song of uh, Ice and Fire Reddit who m- wanted the show to do that Dario. Oh, of course. Of course. They're the hardcore book fans. I mean, have been for 20 years. This guy shows up looking like Grimace from Ronald McDonald Land. Yeah. And it, I get it in your head it looks cool, but that's no. not going to look cool in the real world. It's going to look like a psychedelic version of Pirates of the Caribbean. Yeah. The, the majority of the audience will not connect with that. Uh, Jeffrey, the self-titled Sayer of the Law, says, I love the way the show announced what I assume will be an important theme for the season. The episode is bookended by Tywin melting down the Stark Greatsword Ice and Arya reclaiming her own blade needle. In light of the Hound's uh, words with the Lannister men at the end, Tywin would be well advised to hold off on counting his chickens just yet. Because they could all be eaten by the end of this <laughs> next episode. Don't catch your chickens before <laughs> Colonel Sander eats them all. <laughs> Number two, Jamie. His painful journey continues, encountering rejection by father, son, and nephew, and sister lover alike. Whether Cersei rejected Jamie's advances because she feels vulnerable now that their relationship is no longer secret, or because she realized from her cavorting with Lancel that any Lannister will serve her needs, is almost beside the point <laughs> in light of her cold treatment. I don't see Jamie reacting with favor if Cersei does what we think she's going to do to Shay. Which I'm guessing may be the catalyst to a Lannister showdown of sorts with Tyrion and Jamie taking sides against the others. God, that'd be sweet. They're my two favorite Lannisters by far. <laughs> They're the only yeah. Lannisters I'm rooting for in any capacity. It, it makes me wonder, though, is is Jamie being uh, spurned by all of the rest of his family, kind of driving him toward Brienne? Man, you are shipping Brienne harder than I've ever seen you ship anybody anything in your life. <laughs> I'm I'm not necessarily saying romantically. Jamie I'm just and Brienne saying... is your uh, Don and Peggy. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I'm just saying when he doesn't have these other support means around him with his family, maybe that's where he turns, and not necessarily in a romantic relationship, but. Want to plunder her sapphire? If... Oh, Jesus. Uh, Josh from Fort Collins, Colorado says, Oberon had a good character establishing moment. I'll say this for new characters, though they sometimes don't pan out. They're pretty good, at least when it comes to introducing them for the first time. Stannis the Manus 
The Mountain, The Brotherhood, Dario, Oberon, etc. all received memorable openings or early scenes that told you quite a lot about them. The Thins, too, though the jury's still out about the Magnar's performance. I don't think I mentioned this, but the head thin in the book is called the Magnar, oh, which okay. is like the old tongue for Lord. All right. Um, and I don't know if that's the guy's official name or title in the series, but that's what people have been calling him. Uh, anyone who dwarfs Tormund and Giantsbane, though, gets my attention. Uh, he did. He was a big, big dude, big mm-hmm. crow, big crow eater. Although I didn't think that the other guy was very big. He yeah. looked about as tall as Egret, and it, that's true. Honestly, I don't know if that was an uneven terrain or not. But yeah, there's a couple scenes where they seem to be about a height, and I don't think that Rose is a giant herself. Um, it was good to see a couple old familiar faces back at the wall. Alistair Thorne looked huge next to Aemon and Slint, and I don't think he I realized that Owen Teal's a pretty big guy even though he was a head taller than Jon Snow in season one. That's the actor. Fitting for a master at arms. Another strong scene that I loved was the moment where Slint laughs at Jon's mention of giants, why Thorne and Aemon don't even flinch. I think I'm going to enjoy the Castle Black scenes this year. Me too, Josh. And that ending, it's equal parts a cathartic victory and an unsettling transformation. Arya's echoing of Polliver's words back to him and that emotionless, not quite natural tone she used with the Frey soldiers in last season's finale is eerie. On one hand, you're happy that something good happened to a Stark, that she's riding off with a sword back and a horrible man dead. But on the other, you're aware that it, this world is doing to Arya. As you noted in the instant cast, we get that final shot of her and a hound riding triumphantly, yet forward into a burning, ravaged countryside. It's a sad reminder of what Arya and so many of Westeros have had to suffer, and an ominous portrait of, or portent of what the future has in store for her. Mm-hmm. So he's from a little column A, column B, school of thought about her uh quote unquote triumph at the end. Yeah. Anything to mention before I move on? Nope. Shane F said Aaron has often acted annoyed about how often this show includes the reigns of Castamir. I think that last season the show had had to impress that song on the audience as often as possible so that during the last or the red wedding the viewer would recognize the song as fast as the characters and maybe even a touch before. Hmm. That aside I love the idea that opening credits is the song for the Starks. Of course Glad you love that idea, but I'm dead wrong. <laughs> Looking forward to the new season. I'll miss Mad Brew's theories, strong opinions, and especially his effect, affection for Arya. I love to listen to him rant about how epic she was in the final scene of the opener. But I already know that I enjoy the chemistry between Aaron and Jim. Um, and uh, he's thanks us for all efforts. So thank you for that. Uh, again, uh, go to madbrewlabs.com if you want. You can uh, chat him up and see what he thought if he's uh, if he's watching it live. I'm not sure if he is. Um, but, yeah, by all means, reach out to him. Dylan J said, great first episode. I'm really interested in the new, our new Dornish friends. In the preview cast, you mentioned a little bit of the backstory and bad blood. I know that Aaron can't say much, but how long do you think it will take before Prince Aladdin starts wreaking havoc in King's Landing? And who will his first victim be? Okay, it will take him approximately five minutes of screen time, and his first victim will be a Lannister wrist. <laughs> that man will never jerk off a full range of motion again. It's, it's tragic. Mm, yeah. Um, all these Dornish men that rode in to meet Ty- Tyrion, where do they fit in? Uh, yeah, I mentioned in the mm. preview or the the instant cast how kind of you know Oberon's a one man wrecking machine, but he did have. God only knows how many Dornishmen coming with them. Where do you see them fitting in there, Jim? Uh, well, they didn't do a very good job, in my opinion, of introducing those other people. As as good of an introduction as Oberyn got, 
the the other people were glossed over largely. So I couldn't tell how many people were with him. I couldn't tell what kind of people. Was he bringing warriors? Was he bringing lords and ladies? Like, it was hard to tell in that scene. Mm. So if he brought kind of a bunch of gruff dudes with him, maybe shit's going to go bad soon. I don't know. If he brought a bunch of his uh, his wives and daughters, maybe shit's not going to go bad. Well, it's Westeros. Predicting that shit's going to go bad <laughs> is usually a... A pretty safe uh, bet. Usually that's a pretty safe bet. Uh, Randy H. has her last non-spoiler email. He says, what's up with the necklaces? I'm wondering if these three separate events will eventually come together, perhaps with fatal consequences for Shay. The Lannister maid is shown spying on her as she leaves Sansa and Tyrion's quarters and then reports it to Cersei. Lady Olenna sends her girls on a quest for the best necklace in King's Landing for Marjorie to wear at the wedding. And Sir Dantos... Surprises Sansa and out of the blue offers her his mother's necklace. I won't surprised if the, I won't be surprised if the fool's necklace is reported as stolen, and when it ends up in Sansa's possession somehow, the facts are twisted to blame Shay for it. Bom bom bom. Think maybe we talked about that earlier. Mild interest. <laughs> um, yeah, my buddy uh, Will that I uh, used to work with has the uh, similar theory. Okay. And that awkward silence says that we're at the end of our main cast proper. Oh, good. That was a really long cast. So It is. It is. <laughs> I hope it was comprehensive for people. And you can send us uh, You can send us email at gameofthrones at baldmove.com <laughs> if you'd like. I almost said TNW. No, no. Uh, gameofthrones at baldmove.com if you'd like to send us some more feedback. And also, you can always follow us on facebook.com slash baldmove. And Jim over on Twitter at baldmove. And unless you have anything else to say, we'll kick it to spoilers where the book people should just stay the hell out. No, the the non-book people. Sorry, the non-book <laughs> people should stay the hell out. The book people should come the hell in. Yeah. All right. Sounds good. That's it. I got nothing. All right. I'll see you next. Uh, see you this weekend for a new episode. And until then, I'm your host, Aaron. And I'm Jim. We're out. Watch it all come around as I lay on the ground. Joffrey, Cersei, Ill and Pain and Hound. They all think I'm lost, but I know where I'm bound. I'm the blood in the north when it all comes down. My word is my bond, and my bond is my word. Valar, Harris, all men must serve. See, as a raven flies, and time slips by. Valar, my rulers, all men must die. All right. Welcome to the exclusive book reader only and adventuresome television watchers. Spoiler section. If you have not read uh, all five of the current books up through Dance with Dragons, I highly encourage you to shut off your podcast now. I can't stop you, of course. I get emails on a weekly basis saying, man, I wish I had listened to your warnings and I didn't and now I'm disappointed and I don't want that to be you. Um, But again, there's some people like myself. um, I'm kind of spoiler agnostic. I think if something's done well, it's enjoyable regardless of whether you know it's coming. Um, however, I would hate for you to be spoiled in the context of a podcast. You know, it's one thing if you spoil yourself for a television show, reading the books or vice versa, but you got some dumbass like me just giving it to you straight. That could be a problem. Anyway, you've had the music. You've had me droning on for a minute. Let's get right through the spoilers. A couple things no one touched on an email, but I wanted to point out for the book readers is I thought it was really clever uh Tyrion's second son reference uh when uh, he was commiserating 
with uh, Oberon uh, as being the second son. He called him a fellow second son. Of course, Dance with Dragons, he becomes an official second son, part of the uh, second son sellswords company. I thought that was clever. Uh, I also thought, I'm not sure if they've ever made a reference to Pigeon Pie before, but uh, one of the many things that Shay was trying to tempt Sansa with to eat uh, was Pigeon Pie. And, of course, you know, Pigeon Pie famously comes into play uh, with uh, when it's served to the Boltons and Freys. And they're going to go. I, I do try to protect the, the, the venturesome fans a little bit and not just tell, you know, big plot lines. But you know what I'm talking about. Uh, and finally, what do we make of the Thins? You know, in the books, the Thins are the more civilized branch of the wildlings uh they wear copper armor um they have more advanced weaponry uh they have a social structure similar to the uh north lords uh northern lords rather um you know they have a lot of the same customs uh they're you know very similar culture to the first men uh very similar culture to the northmen in general um, and here they're played as by as bloodthirsty cannibals. It's not a big problem so far. It was very cool and menacing. Um, but it, you know, the books, I felt like as we got to know the wildlings, that they're more like, hey, just like us. And in a television show, some of them at least are bloodthirsty cannibals. We'll see uh, what they end up doing with that. Maybe they'll do something interesting with it. But I thought it was interesting. If you'd like to discuss it, uh, send an email to Game of Thrones at baldmove.com. Um, I try to read as much last week email as I can uh, until it gets the crush of you know new new uh, new show feedback prevents me from doing that. But uh, if any of that is interesting, uh, go ahead and send us an email. There were a couple fans that we did send us some spoiler uh, commentary. First up, Nevin. Said, Aaron, you said something caught my attention. Drogon snapped at Danny. You said, how is she supposed to control them when it comes time for her to take her throne? Uh, I came up with this, and this is only if they cross paths sometimes during the story. What if at some point Danny crosses paths with Dan Bran, and with Bran being a warg, maybe his skills will be strong enough to control the dragons for Danny? It's really the only way I see her writing it. That's a solid theory. In fact, uh, <clears throat> if you're if you follow the tinfoil theories on Reddit. Um, and Westeros.org, some other places, you'll find them talking about the th- uh, the three. The dragon must have three heads. We talked a little bit about that in the tinfoil section last week, and I think it's going to be a future topic. Uh, what the identity of those three dragon heads might be. I don't think they've actually made it a point in the show that you know, they haven't even really talked much about these prophecies, and they've kind of soft pedaled all the prophecies. It might just be because there's no need to bring it up in season one if it's not going to come into play until season five, so they can always inject that later. Just like Sir Dantas, we'd kind of written him off, right? Boom, he comes back at the beginning of season four. Um, so they can make that happen. But one of the identities of the three heads, uh, people say, is, dra- uh, is Bran literally warged into a dragon, which would be cool as hell uh, uh, and might kind of wrap your theory in uh, with this uh, third head uh, theory. So moving on to Sheem uh, says, when Sans escapes, how is her marriage to Tyrion annulled in the books? 
I know Littlefinger has plans to marry her off. They don't really annul her marriage yet, although the path forward to that seems pretty clear. Number one, they reveal Sansa, Sansa Stark. Number two, she never consummated a marriage. That's a fact. Uh, I don't know if it'll be common knowledge, but she can just, I mean, it worked for Marjorie, Marjorie right? Uh, never slept with the guy. Marriage null and void. Second, depending on how all this stuff works out, and Littlefinger might be playing all these angles, uh, maybe Stannis, uh, as the king, has the right, I believe, to annul marriages. If he wins the, the war and sits the Iron Throne, or some other ally of Littlefinger or the Stark sits the Iron Throne, they could annul the marriage or lean on the High Septon to annul the marriage as well. So these things can be done. I think the, the key fact is that she, it never was consummated, so the marriage can easily be legally set aside, and I don't see that as being a big problem moving forward for those two, or for Sansa anyway. Uh, Tyler S. says, Good call on the Hound meeting Polliver this episode. The only wrench was the Hound not getting injured. I'm hoping they don't spend the whole season chilling near the Eerie, but it's possible now. Or maybe they're going to have Arya kill the Hound. She seems to have a taste for killing now, and last season, she made that threat about putting a sword through his eye and out the back of a skull. I watched this scene a bunch of times because it's cool, and also because of Tyler's message here. I think that you can see the Hound get slashed in the back at one point. And he doesn't make much of his injury. Uh, in the book, he kind of played off it as nothing until it got infected and became a problem. But, I again, they laid the foundation there for if you're watching, you can see him take a hit, uh, maybe even two hits. And if in a couple episodes goes by, he reveals that he's got this wound that's infected. I don't see any reason why that can't play out just like it is in the book. Having said that, my God, the chemistry between the Hound and Arya is fantastic. I would not mind seeing more of this. So if they stretch this out and do the whole season until they part ways somehow, I'm cool with that too. Tyler continues, it's interesting that they reintroduced Sir Dantos. I'm wondering if the Double Ds regret not having him as a part of the subterfuge with Littlefinger from the beginning because now it seems like they still want a big reveal that Littlefinger's behind it all, even though we pretty much uh, know. I don't know, because my take on the non-book readers that I've talked to this week is they have no fucking clue that this necklace is going to be integral to the plot. And it's still going to be, yeah, it's still going to be pretty breathless when we get to uh, the Purple Wedding and it is deployed. And if Littlefinger's at the end of that, it's still going to be pretty shocking for a book reader. I'm delighted that they brought that little part of Sir Dantas back. Um, and I think for as big a gap in time as it's been, it's been two full seasons since we've seen him. I thought, again, with the intro, did a lot of heavy lifting and set it up nicely so the the, the book readers and the show readers like, oh, yeah, I know who this guy is. Everybody, I, I didn't talk to anybody yet that didn't know who he was. But none of the non-book readers have any clue that that necklace is going to be anything. They So I think it's really cool the way they did that. And and uh, I think it's going to be epic. It's going to be mind-blowing 
along the lines of the red wedding especially since if it happens next next episode nobody's prepared for shit that big to happen in the second episode it's it'll be a big statement by the double d's uh he continues tyler does i wonder if jamie's early arrival to king's landing will have any implications beyond some extra scenes between him and joffrey or Tyrion? i don't know i really don't know i think that it's I, I love seeing him and Brienne. I love seeing Brienne reminding him of his obligations to the Starks. I think that that's going to, uh, obviously, Sans is going to go missing over the next two or three episodes. And Jamie's all but admitted that he still feels kind of indebted to making sure he's safe. And I think that's going to be the impetus for him to bequeath unto her than his new Valerian blade and send her off on her quest. I also think that with Tyrion being otherwise occupied and engaged, that Pod will get to go along with her, which is cool, because I thought in the book that those two had a lot of common cause and and, uh, chemistry, and I'd like to see those two actors play off each other. Uh, Finally, said, totally right about being the wedding being next episode. Looks like it's going to be pretty epic. Agreed. You called that right. I was very skeptical that they'd get around to it that early, but... Uh, according to the previews and from the show descriptions and even the titles, I think that yeah, we're right on track. Josh in Fort Collins, Colorado says the first episode introduced one or two elements that we might not have expected and could affect where some readers and viewers had guessed what might occur and when. Sir Dantas returned, for example, something I didn't realize was happening until recently. I'm hoping I'll have something of a presence at the Purple Wedding next week, likely in his capacity as a fool. I'm assuming they brought him back to help Sansa with her escape. I'd imagine the wedding will take up much of the next episode with Sansa fleeing and meeting up with Littlefinger in episode three. I do wonder how much of Sansa's story will be getting this season. If they, though, if they put everything, journeying through the fingers, spending time here before moving through to Eerie. Uh, or is that Irie or Ire? I have no idea how to pronounce the word that remi- that, that is literally an eagle's nest. If someone wants to correct my dumbass, please do so. Uh, anyway, they could probably pull it off. From the trailers I saw, it looks like she's going to make it at least to the fingers, if not to uh, the eerie, because there's a a picture of her kind of laying, and it looks like it's a cold room, because I think I saw her breath form, but she's laying in a very narrow, you know, something like you would expect a bastard daughter uh, to be laying on um, in some kind of um, very lonely, dark room. So I think we will see her go there by the end of the season uh if it takes three episodes to get gendry from the riverlands to dragonstone then they can make sansa story last and last episode sure yeah and in the season where the book ended with liza's death man if you look at the way this end of the season is stacked up as far as things happening i can kind of see them punting that into next season uh, as an early shocker but they might just be piling on the awesome here. I don't know. And I also don't know how far into feast and dance they're willing to go. Obviously, they're going a lot deeper than any of us thought, and to the point where I wonder, um, you know, they said that this thing's going to be over in seven, eight seasons. This is at season four. If they kick off next season uh, and finish completely dance with dragons, that only leaves they could do Winds of Winter in one and Dream of Spring in the other, and that'd be seven seasons, and I think Martin's fucked in that scenario. I kind of think he's fucked even if it's eight seasons as far as getting a dream of spring out, but you know that's fodder for another day. Uh, I noticed you and other listeners speculated that Tywin might die as early as episode seven or eight, but I don't see it happening until nine or ten, if only because Storm ended with so many great moments for their respective characters. I heard that nine 
is going to be the battle at the wall almost exclusively. So I don't see them putting off, uh, putting it off until 10 because that that would be six episodes, or maybe even seven episodes because likely Tyrion's trials, episode three at most four. Um, maybe the trial at combat is episode four. That's like six episodes of him just languishing in jail. And I just don't see that happening, that being interesting. Uh, especially when you've got the battle at the wall for a big send-off at nine. But we'll see. Uh, clearly, they're moving into Feast or Dance for some storylines. I'm assuming that bra- that's Bravos we saw in the trailer with a giant statue. So Ari's going to get there this season. I might slow your roll on that because if you look at that trailer carefully, you can see that there's a flag. Uh, a banner flying off that ship, and it is the Flaming Heart with the stag. A lot of people speculating that's actually going to be Stanos uh, or maybe Davos in his name going to the Iron Bank to try to curry favor with them, which is going to set up the plot line where eventually the, the Iron Bank comes to the wall and uh, uh, offers to support him maybe next season. Uh, but I don't think we're going to get to Arya in Bravos just yet. Or if it does, it might be the very last thing that happens this season. Could be wrong, though. I'm wondering where Danny's story might stop by the time he finished the season. We've seen the I will rule moment already, and what looks like Drogon killing some poor sap. Finding out he killed some kid could be a major moment for Danny, but could we end the story there? That's harder to say. That would be an interesting place to end it. Uh... An interview that Double D said episode 10 is the most expensive episode that they've ever filmed as far as cost per second. And they previously said that about episode 9, The Battle at the Wall. That implies like a CGI extravaganza. And some people are saying that could either be Bran having a green seer dream about the future and all this other stuff. Uh, A lot of people speculate and that's where we see the dragon over King's Landing because that clearly is not going to happen yet. It could also be the dragons busting out and rampaging through Marine. That would be something that would cost a lot of money to render. So we'll we'll just see. The show's been light on special effects so far. And they said they saved a lot of budget from last season to do this season. So we'll see where they get into. Uh, I think what's most interesting, though, is where John might be at the end. From what I've read, it looks like... The episode's nine major event is going to be the Battle of the Wall at the arrival of Stannis. If that's the case, it looks like the rescue would be a good episode ender as it reflects the end of Blackwater. That seems like it would leave a lot uh, for the final episode of the season if Jon still needs to be elected if the Watch is going to deal with Stannis. I wonder if much of the election storyline and possibly Sam's part in it will actually take place before the battle, but that will be a major part of Castle Black's storyline through the season. That's about the only way they could do it. Because I just don't see them fitting all that into episode 10. If anything, I see maybe the the inner workings or the, the that plot being forward. The fact that John has been nominated. Um, and then that being kind of a cliffhanger for next season. Because, you know, a lot of times, I think in particular at the end of season one, where they showed badass things happening with people. And that could be one of the things the brothers casting their votes or something like that. Uh, the end, you know, one of the upbeat scenes that's like, well, he had the battle at the wall. You know, is John going to be, is going to win command of the Night's Watch, et cetera, et cetera. So that's my thoughts on it. Uh, we've got some, we're going to move into the tinfoil theory of the week. Again, this is kind of like the spoilers beyond the wall segment. 
This is, we're going past just what's happened in the books, just things that involve the series. And we're going to start talking about predicting the future for what's going to happen in the next books. So I'm just giving you fair warning. We're about to shift into that. We're going to talk about uh, some feedback we had from last week's. And I'm wanting to delve into a really, really fun uh, theory. But first, get to some emails from last week. Levi, or I'm sorry, Louis Fleek says, regarding your first tinfoil conspiracy discussion on R plus L equals J, I want to remind you of one particular point. As far as we know, there's one person left alive who knows the truth of what happened at the Tower of Joy, and that's Howland Reed. I forgot to mention that. I was actually going to mention that as a segue, and I, I totally forgot about it. So thanks for bringing that up. We also know that since Robert's Rebellion, Lord Reed has not left his swamps in the neck north of the Riverlands. We're also told that he's one of Ned's closest friends and perhaps the Stark's most loyal bannerman. Finally, GRRM said in one of his public appearances that we will eventually meet Howland Reed. All that comes from information gained from the Wiki of Ice and Fire and related sites. I think when the reveal happens, it will be Lord Reed that provides the testimony legitimizing Jon Snow as a Targaryen prince. As a noble lord, Howland Reed has a social standing to make such a claim and be believed. He would be famously or infamously known as the one of the men who helped defeat the three greatest living knights of the Kingsguard. My official prediction is that Lord Reed eventually publicly testifies that John is a Targaryen, and as part of the Targaryen Restoration, John marries Daenerys, and the two of the three heads of the reborn dragon, mirroring Aegon, the Conqueror's incestuous relationship with his warrior sisters. In breaking good style, you can officially put me down for that prediction. That is certainly the two most popular uh, identities for the heads of the dragon, John and Danny. Uh, really the only evidence is, well, gee, uh, you know, Martin doesn't do happy endings, and that's too night, neat, and tidy. Okay, fine. I do have a little quibble about Howland Reed's social standing. Uh, most of the Cranigan men don't have any social standing. Even the Northern Lords are kind of looked down upon them. So I don't know that he'll have... Uh, I mean, it's, it's what he has to say isn't going to probably mean a lot to the Tyrells and the Lannisters of the realm. However, really all he has to convince for your heads of the dragon to come true is Danny. And shit, Danny seems to take on anybody. I mean, she's got a disgraced knight in her retinue, uh, her oh, someone that made common cause with her father's betrayer and served with the Kingslayer uh, as another. She's got a fucking pirate and sellsword as a consort. You know, she she puts slavers in office. So she, it seems like anyone that she thinks can help, uh, she'll accept. So I th can see her be her believing Howland Reed for sure, and not having a big pre big pretense about it. Uh, so anyway, again, like that theory, and again, Howland Reed is the only living person that knows about it. There might be a possibility Benjamin Stark, and I got a whole segment. I'm not sure when I'm going to bust this out on the identity of Benjamin Stark and whether or not he survives. Because if anyone else would know, it would be Benjamin, right? Ed Stark's brother. I can see him telling him the family secret. So that that's another possibility. But that's, as we say, a tinfoil for another day. Uh, Chris Dana, or Dana, from Orange County, California, who was nice enough to come to our meetup in San Diego at Stone Brewery. We had a real good time. Uh, he sent an email saying, I've only read the first book, and that was over six months ago, but I listen to spoilers because I'm a glutton for punishment. He's one of those ones that I talk about who just doesn't care about spoilers, doesn't give a shit. 
That said, I enjoyed the Jon Snow theory, but I have two points or counterpoints. The first is that Jon Snow is dark-haired, which is the way our fallen Stark House leader Ned figured out that Joffrey and his little brother and sisters aren't Robert Baratheon's children, and therefore not true heirs to the throne because they were blonde-headed. I guess we aren't given enough information if this applies to every family or bloodline in Westeros. Well, it can't, because Rob's hair is, I believe, dark, isn't it? At least Arya's is for sure, and he's def she's definitely a child of Ned and, uh, um, and Catelyn both. But you know, Catelyn's got the auburn hair, which Sansa has. I can't freaking really remember Rob. I know in the show he's got dark curly hair, and Rickon. Uh, but they all said to have the Tully look, so I assume in the books they kind of all you know kind of favor her. So I don't think it's just anyone. You know, that the father seed, I think that was one of the points that John Aaron was mentioning, that seed is strong with the Baratheons, and that, unusually so, that King Robert fathered 50 bastards, and they all have black hair, but all of his children are golden hair. What's the odds of that? And again, you know, biologically speaking, that doesn't quite line up. It's shit, we're talking about dragons and long winters and stuff, so I'm not, not too worried about that. Uh, your other point <clears throat> um, is more minor, you say, and it might just prove that John isn't the quote-unquote dragon, but he burns his hand saving the Lord Commander from the white in his chambers at the end of Season 1. This doesn't disprove anything, as he could still be a Targaryen, as Viserys was, and still burn from his beautiful golden crown. Uh, and Amanda T. had similar comments about the Targaryens, a true dragon being fireproof, Interestingly enough, the word of Martin is that that was a one-time magical event, Danny's resistance to fire, which is kind of belied in the show, and it's kind of annoying to me because when I talk to Jim, uh, that's something he likes to bring up about a Targaryen trait, and it's not really. In fact, in Dance with Dragons, Danny does get burnt. Um not severely, but definitely scorched and, you know, second second degree burns and all that kind of stuff, at least. Maybe even a third degree here or there. So, again, Word of Martin says that's a one-time magical event that had more to do with the blood magic that, that Danny inadvertently did uh, by sacrificing uh, the, the witch. And that's what also brought the dragons back, and that's what preserved her life. So it's kind of like the spell that the witch put on her by sacrificing her in that fire and be willing to sacrifice herself at like Harry Potter style rebounded and uh, rest you know kept her alive and also restored these dragons as her children. Kind of fucked up, but that's that's what Martin says. All right, so let's get into the main event, the new tinfoil theory. Uh, last last week, honestly, is not so much a theory. It's like it's a theory in the sense that that gravity is a theory. I suppose someone somewhere could find some grand unification theory that disproves everything we know about gravity. Yet you still drop an apple. It's going to hit the ground. You know, it might not work the, exactly the way, but the basic facts are the same. I think that at this point, if um, Martin backs away from the L plus R equals J theory, that he's going to have a lot of explaining to do. Um, I mean, if it turns out to be somebody like shit, Sam, for example, the Slayer, uh, that he's actually the prince that was promised, that's actually not a bad idea. I'm gonna have to come up with a tinfoil theory to support that. 
uh, <laughs> look forward to that in the future. But I, what I'm saying is, like, if it's anybody else at the wall but John with that blue flower growing out of a chink in the ice, it's 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 going to be almost a betrayal for me. So that's a solid, solid theory. This week, definite tinfoil material. But on the scale of tinfoil, I would say it's more like Reynolds Wrap, heavy-duty, 36-inch wide aluminum foil. This is no mere, you know, wrapper on your ding-dong. Um which if you're old enough to remember ding-dongs, the hostess probably, this isn't like a condom joke. Ding-dongs used to be wrapped in really flimsy uh, tinfoil wrappers before they got shrink-wrapped like they are now. Uh, anyway, Roose Bolton, Vampire Lord, also known as the uh, Roose, or uh, also known as the Bolton applied directly to the head, uh, forehead theory. Yeah, that's where you can, if you want to search on the internet, you could probably search Roos Vampire or Bolton uh, Reddit Vampire or something like that. Um, the Roos is loose, the Spruce Roos, any other pun you want to make, uh, that's this theory. Uh, it all started off a couple months ago on Reddit. Someone posted to the Song of Ice and Fire subreddit, which, again, if you're not a book reader, Jesus, stay the hell off of that one. Game of Thrones is bad. The Game of Thrones subreddit is bad enough. But Song of Ice and Fire, all they do is sit and analyze all the books and even the preview chapters and the Dunkin' Egg Chronicles and all that crap. Uh, but one, someone posted a thread, what hunch do you believe <clears throat> but cannot prove? And a guy named J.B. Talley said that Roos Bolton has been alive for thousands of years and has been impersonating various figures around Restoros during that time. He is the Night's King's son, and he used leeches to preserve his body. And people are like, wow, that... That is that is pretty impressive. Uh, and he didn't have any support for this. He just spit it out there. Uh, there are, was some theories in the uh, Westeros.org site about Roos being the son of the Night's King, or the Bolton. Actually, is the Bolton's lineage stems from uh, the, the, the uh, Night King. And we're going to talk about that here in a minute. Um, but this really set one particular Redditor's mind on fire, whose name is Madge312, M-A-J-312. Uh, he is kind of like a Bolton scholar. Most of his posts had to do with the Boltons and Ruse in particular. And he submitted something soon after that uh, about how Roos Bolton age is just a number. And he says, uh, G- uh, and again, these theories are not mine. These are theories I found on the internet. None of this stuff is my original thought. I'll let you know if I ever have one and I'll crow about it. But this is, I I don't want to take credit for these. These are just stuff I found on the internet. Uh, He says, GRRM hints a couple times that Roos is well past, quote unquote, the age of 40. Uh, He then talks about like how old he might be. And he cites evidence that the younger sister of Roos's second wife is Barbary Dustin. She's described by the Westeros Wiki. As thus, she has wrinkles around her eyes and mouth. She is still tall, unbent, and handsome. Her hair is equal parts brown and gray, wearing it tied behind her head in a widow's knot. So we see this woman, uh, who is the younger sister of Roos's second wife, which is kind of saying that this woman is younger than Roos, you would assume, um, is graying and wrinkled. Okay? Uh, as another example, Domerick Bolton was Roos's legitimate son and heir. And we're going to talk about this later, but he was murdered by Ramsey uh, because he didn't like a legitimate heir being in front of him as a bastard. 
He's described in the books as being able to outrace Leanna Stark, who you'll recall we talked about last week on horseback. So you can make an inference from that, right? You can infer that Damaric uh, had to be old enough to ride a full-size horse while Leanna was still alive. Since she dies 14 years before the events of Game of Thrones, this means that she's likely just a few years younger than Ned Stark. Leanna was her younger sister. You know, Damaric was of an age of her. So we're kind of, and we know Ned was in his like thirties. Uh, so that kind of puts a lower l- limit on how old Roos can be. Uh, his second uh, line of evidence was or third line of evidence rather is Roos also has a namesake, uh, Roos Risewell. Uh, this is the brother of Roos's second wife. And he points out for someone to be named after someone else, the original Roos must've been a man of some note at the time of Roos Risewell's birth. That's a. I have a slight quibble of that because just marrying his sister, older sister, could be reason enough for someone to name someone after somebody. But it's a reasonably strong theory. Why would you name some someone after somebody unless they'd done something to distinguish themselves? Um. So we're not sure if he's an older or younger brother, but he's not likely to be uh, more than twenty years younger if he is. You know, because again, Westeros, if you're you know, mom started having babies when she was 16 and she called it quits at 40 or a little bit after that, which would be unusual. That's kind of constraints on how old you can be between younger, oldest and youngest uh, uh, sibling. Uh, but in the book, when he's introduced, he's kind of introduced as one of those characters who's in his mid 30s or early 40s. That would make Roos around late 50s to early to mid 60s or older. And yet, this is how he's described as the in the books. Uh, Reek describes him, though Roos has been in battles, he bore no scars. Though well past 40, he has yet unwrinkled, with scarce a line to tell the passage of time. There is an agelessness about him, a stillness on Roos Bolton's face. Rage and joy looked much the same. All he and Ramsay had in common were their eyes. His eyes are ice. So he pointed out can you know ask the question can leechings alone because that's one thing we know about the bolton he's crazy about leeches he's crazy about blood he talks a lot of times about you know blood being inflamed or purity of blood or blood being poisoned or hot blood he's always leeching himself all over his body frequently many times a day uh, almost obsessed with it can these leechings explain his youthful good looks about a month later uh, MAJ312 or Madge312 followed up on Roos's age analysis with the groundbreaking breaking theory that he was, in fact, a vampire. Now, keep in mind, this isn't as crazy as it might first appear, okay? I mean, we've got this theme. Wargs, people warging in the wolves is an obvious kind of homage to the werewolf mythology. Uh, with Kyburn and R- Sir Robert Strong... Martin's making a very obvious reference to Frankenstein and his monster. And in fact, that that's kind of a, a theory onto its own, the whole Robert Strong identity. But w- when I finally got to it in the books, it seemed incredibly obvious, his real identity and how this thing happened. So I'm just assuming it is fact. But if it is, then we've got an obvious Frankenstein ref- reference here. So we got werewolves, we got vampires, can't, we've got skin changers. Um, can vampires really be that far-fetched if you got this universe populated with classic horror monster tropes? You know, Martin must be a fan of these guys, so would he put a vampire lord in here? 
Well, let's look at uh, his evidence. Uh, he says his thesis was there's only been one Bolton patriarch. Uh, and in support, he says that uh, recall the faceless men and their methods for disguise. And if you haven't gotten that far, or if you don't recall, basically when Arya finally becomes a full-fledged acolyte, she's allowed access to the lowest level of the faceless man's temple. And she finds that it's populated by endless rows of faces. All kinds of faces. Men, women, beggars, rich people, beautiful people, ugly people, people with disease, people with scars. Just, just hundreds if not thousands of people's faces. And the head acolyte, uh, who, what was his name? The merciful man or the quiet man? I can't recall. Um, he does something where he has her close her eyes. He cuts her forehead. He sticks this face on her. And when she opens her eyes back up, she is taken on this person's face. It's like a living mask, like Mission Impossible style. And that's one of the levels uh, of magic that the faceless men are able to employ to do their job. So we see that this technology of changing faces and changing skins exists in this world. It's not a speculation. That's a fact. Um. And again, that's blood magic because you have to get it all wet with a with where's blood for it to take, right? Uh, we know that Bolton is a very ancient house, that they've been bitter rivals to the Starks back when the Starks were kings in the north. Um, magic was very commonplace back then. We also know from the oral histories handed down that many Starks were wargs. And people wonder, you know, if you got these magically powerful Starks and Winterfell with their warging abilities. It's such a huge and obvious advantage over the Boltons. How would they survive this feud against this superior enemy with their magical powers? Uh, also recall that the Boltons were known to have worn the skins of their enemies as cloaks. Uh, even their, their claim that even a few Starks lay, uh, met that fate and ended up getting flayed in the halls of the Dreadfort. They've been flaying people since the Age of Heroes, which goes back thousands and thousands and thousands of years. Uh, perhaps they've mastered the art of uh, skin changing that faceless men now use. You know, think about what kind of havoc you'd wreak among your en enemies if you could just appear as one of them at a crucial moment. If you're captured or you're about to be captured, um, think of you know the simple trick that Reek slash Ramsey pulled um, on Roderick Castle that uh, was you know the, the came back to reclaim. Winterfell, and he pretended he was on his side, and they massacred everybody. Well, if you can actually appear to be your, you know, the the person's lord or a close relative of that, it could really, you know, fuck shit up. Uh, then also Ramsay, you know, why does Roos put up with Ramsay? They're nothing really alike in personality, except for maybe cruelty. If you believe some of the excesses of the Boltons, um, Roos despises boy lords, of course, and since Ramsay's slain all of his trueborn heirs. And because of his age, he's resigned to make the most of a bad situation. But, you know, we've already talked about Roos seemings to be in perfect health. Even if he's 60, there shouldn't be any problem with fathering additional children. Why doesn't he think he wouldn't live for another 20 years? If he, say, is 60 years old, why wouldn't he live to 80? Why couldn't he dispose of Ramsay and start over again? What if there's another reason that Roos was keeping Ramsay alive? Why did Roos spare Ramsay uh, when he first found out that he had a bastard? Because the book makes a point that Ramsay had his same eyes. Roos, Madge 312 puts forth, is keeping Ramsay around because he plans on stealing Ramsay's identity. He plans on stealing his face because Roos is immortal. And in fact, the son of the Night King. So let's talk about some evidence about this 
Bolton springing from the Night King. Uh, we're going to go all the way back to Game of Thrones with some of the stories that old Dan is telling Bran. Uh, quote here, the gathering gloom put Bran in mind of another age or a, a mind of another one of old Nan's stories, the tale of the Night's King. He had been the 13th man to lead the Night's Watch, a warrior who knew no fear. And that was the fault in him, she would add, for all men must know fear. A woman was his downfall, a woman glimpsed from atop the wall with skin as white as the moon and eyes like blue stars. Fearing nothing, he chased her and caught her and loved her, though her skin was cold as ice, and when he gave his seed to her, he gave her his soul as well. He brought her back to the night fort and proclaimed her a queen and himself her king, and with strange sorceries he bound the sworn brothers to his will. For thirteen years they had ruled Knight's King and Corpse Queen, till finally the Stark of Winterfell and Joraman of the Wildlings had joined to free the Watch from bondage. After his fall, when it was found that he had been sacrificing to the others, all records of the Knight's King had been destroyed, and his very name had been forbidden. Some say he was a Bolton, old Nan would always end, and I hasten to add that she then said, maybe he's a number, or maybe he's a car Stark, or hell. You know, really, I think he was really a Stark, and who knows, he might have slept in your very bedroom one day just to scare the shit out of Bran, right? So, some people say that this woman the Night King fell in love with was an other herself. Judging by her eyes and skin color and temperature, you know, she had these bright blue eyes, ice-cold skin, sounds like another to me, right? And note that it says he gave his seed to her. Now, to me, that goes beyond him just fucking her, but it implies that they had offspring, that they he got a child from her. Um, uh, MAJ312 sums up this theory, and I'll quote. He says, what if this uh, half-other, half-human offspring had a child? That child grew to be an adult but then ceased to age. How could this strange creature continue his existence while living in the world of men? It must pretend. It must be cautious. This is where the vampire theory comes in. It must look like it lives and dies and gives birth to heirs like men do and when it's lived for 50 or 60 years not long enough for its unlined face and dark hair to draw too much attention it flays a son with pale pale eyes and assumes his identity he quotes a dance with dragons on page 48 where roose bolton uh it's described as roose bolton's own face is a pale gray mask with two chips of dirty ice where his eyes should be uh he kind of says that that's like Martin giving a wink about this uh, true identity here. So let's consider some other supporting evidence. Uh, the others in the comment threads and and other forums put forth. Uh, Roost does a lot of creepy shit during his time at Hall, where Arya served as his page, similar to how to show Arya served Tywin. She comments on his coldness and his fondness for frequent leechings, but check out this passage from A Clash of Kings. Roost Bolton was seated by the hearth, reading from a thick leather-brown book when he entered, when she entered, Arya. Light some candles, he commanded as he turned the page. It grows gloomy in here. She placed the food at his elbow and did as he bid her, filling the room with flickering light and a scent of cloves. Bolton turned a few more pages with his finger and then closed the book and placed it carefully in the fire. He watched the flames consume it, pale eyes shining with reflected light. The old dry leather went up with a whoosh. The yellow pages stirred as they burned as if some ghost were reading them. I'll have no further need of you tonight, he said, never looking at her. Creepy ass shit. Why is Roos burning ancient books? Could it be books regarding Bolton lineage that might raise some uncomfortable questions regarding the Bolton's family line? 
Uh, house Lofton of Harrenhal was an extinct house of the Riverlands. They held Riven or Harrenhal uh, for three or four generations before the events in the books and were a, po- a powerful house which once loomed large in the histories of the Seven Kingdoms. Their arms were a black bat on a field divided bendwise, silver and gold. Lady Danielle Lofton was said to send giant bats out to capture children for her cookpots. And a mad lady Lawson, which is possibly the same Danielle, is said to have bathed in blood and feasted on flesh. Maybe this book was a book on blood magic that the lady, the mad lady Lawson has kept around and, and Roos was taking advantage of inhabiting the Heron Hall to, to brush up on his own uh, blood magic and then burn them to keep other people from finding his, his secrets. Or maybe Roos is just into burning ancient books in the middle of the bloody night. Who the hell knows, right? But it's weird. It's something that's consistent with something you'd read Dracula doing, right? Also, why is Rousseau damn fond of leeching? Well, maybe he needs the leeching to draw the blood into his skin to keep it alive. We know modern medicine has come back around to using leeches to improve the vascularity of reattached limbs and skin grafts um, because it, you know, it, it encourages capillary growth and avoids these things from getting necrotized keeps him healthy. Maybe Roos needs these leeches to keep his various assumed skins appearing fresh and healthy too. And that's why he has to be leeched all the damn time or else he'd start looking like a fucking white. And we're not just talking about his face. We're talking about a whole skin operation. That's the way the Boltons roll. It's the Bolton way. Consider their banner, the flayed man, literally a man without skin. Could that actually be the representation of the Lord of the Dreadfort, his true form that he then covers with the skins of his victims? that he's been flaunting to the other lords of Westeros without their knowledge for thousands of years. It's right in their face. The flayed man isn't a symbol of their fallen enemies. It's the fucking lord of the Dreadfort himself. Now, thematically, this makes sense. The Starks, we talked about this. Werewolves slash wargs, Boltons, vampires are perfect natural rivals. It's a common trope in horror, literature, and cinema since the days of Bela Lugosi and Lon Chaney Jr., you see it in its modern forms, in Underworld, and True Blood, and yes, fucking Twilight. So, again, if Martin's going for this, it makes perfect thematic sense. Roos has a saying, a peaceful land and a quiet people. This has some parallels, you know, he believes in, you know, justice, firm justice, but not the kind of wanton cruelty and bloodshed that his son is into, because then the people are quiet and are easy to rule. This has parallels with historical and mythical Dracula stories, uh, who said to use brutal methods to maintain law and order in his realm, but indeed, his realm had peace. Legend says Dracula kept a golden cup in his town's central fountain so that people could drink from it, and no one ever stole from it, because they did, they'd fucking get impaled. So why keep Ramsay alive, who's this brutal madman, for no reason... uh, but for his own pleasure, there's no good end to the shit that Ramsey did. He just did it to terrorize people because he's sick. What he, would you keep someone like that alive if your uh, you know, mantra is peaceful land, quiet pe- uh, people? Well, it makes perfect sense if he's just raising Ramsey for his pelt. He doesn't give a shit. In another couple of years, he's going to harvest it, take on Ramsey's identity, and suddenly Ramsey's going to chill the fuck out. He's not gonna. He's gonna stop doing all this shit, and the people are, will will begin to love him, and you know, stop fomenting rebellion. Do the double D's have any insider knowledge for the show? Some people think it's very suspicious that uh, Roos tossed off this line to Wal- Wal- Walder Frey, 
rural juror uh, to Walter Frey in episode 10 of the third season. Just after the Red Wedding, they're talking about the young wolf, and he toasts, and then he has this really creepy like saying, forever young. Then we cut directly to Ramsey at the Dreadfort. They're saying that's a sly parallel. It's kind of intriguing. Um, another logical thing to consider is why would Roos ever be in the same place as Ramsey? Aside from House Aaron, Bolton's got to be the easiest house in the world to just crush. All you got to do is kill two guys and you're done. No more male heirs. House over. You can sack and take over. In the novels, most other major houses have many sons and they keep one of them behind in their fortresses or keeps or steadfast or castles or whatever. When they go off adventuring to war to uh, maintain their bloodline, it makes good sense. But Roos goes ahead and puts Ramsay... Uh, and himself, his sole heir and himself in some ruined enemy castle, surrounded by people of questionable loyalty, while the dread fort remains empty. That seems to be really stupid, a really stupid strategic move on his part, when so far he's played everything so perfectly, so brilliantly. But it doesn't seem as stupid if he has some other reason to be sure of his survival, like the fact that he's some immortal abomination that's been alive for thousands of years. One final point to ponder, I mentioned above that Ramsay kills all of Roos' children, uh, and maybe he did kill his eldest son, Domeric, but Roos also mentioned the possibilities of having many other children. He, uh, This is a quote from Roos in the books, says, Lady Wald is afraid, and she has a fertile feel to her. I become oddly fond of my fat little wife. The two before her never made a sound in bed, but this one squeals and shudders, and I find that quite endearing. She pops out suns the way she pops in tarts. The dreadful fort will soon be overrun with Boltons. Ramsay will kill them all, of course. That's for the best. I will not live long enough to see my new sons to manhood. The boy lords are the bane of any house. Walda will grieve to see them die, though. So we see Roos foresees having many more children, but suspects Ramsay will murder them all. But what if that's just a cover? He kept his firstborn alive to keep his skin. He suffers his bastard to live for the same reasons. But the skin-changing vampire lord theory is correct. Maybe he's indulging in some other more other-like behaviors, White Walker-like behaviors, such as child sacrifice, like a craster's keep. Uh, what the hell does the others do with those male children that they take anyway? They, people theorize maybe they make more of themselves, or maybe there's some blood magic involved that sustains them, and they feed off this life energy. The same blood magic that Roos needs as well and now he has a fat, fertile wife that can supply him like a baby factory, punching out babies like movie tickets. It seems horrible, right, even for Roos. But consider what he just said before this passage about his son, Domeric. He said, Now his bones lie beneath the dread fort, the bones of his brothers, who died still in the cradle, and I am left with Ramsay. It's not even the first time Bolton children have died mysteriously in their cribs, all males. This is starting to sound more and more like Craster-ish business. Why is he making his moves to acquire power in the North now after being kept uh, in heel and in check by the Starks for centuries? Well, it's simple. He's half other. Winter is coming, the long night. His time is at hand. He can feel it. So now he's setting to make the entire North a staging area for the others to welcome his long-lost relatives back into uh, their time of power on Westeros. Again, it's probably bullshit. 
but I think it's one of the cooler of the kooky theories and actually has a surprising lot of support in the source material. Curious to see what you thought of that. Uh, it's radically different from the L plus R equals J. Again, if you have other theories that you'd like me to consider, uh, keep sending them in. I've got a pretty long to-do list at this point. Uh, we'll be talking about uh, uh, some theories and speculation about Jack and uh, Hagar's identities as they shift throughout the novels. We'll be talking about the tinfoilist of tinfoil, Benjamin Stark, what's his present identity. Uh, we'll be talking about the Grand Northern Conspiracy and also an analysis of the many prophecies regarding to Danny and how by they look at the end of Dance with Dragons. So that's what's coming in the weeks ahead. Uh, if you've got some others that I didn't mention there, please send them in and we'll get them slotted. Had a lot of fun doing the research on this as always. If you've got comments on this or any other spoiler section, please send it in to Game of Thrones at baldmove.com. And that's it for the spoiler section. Hope you enjoyed the cast, and I will see you next Sunday after the second episode of Game of Thrones Season 4. Thanks for listening. Talk to you then.